This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about the 2001, I have to now check my notes, 2001 album Mutter from Rammstein, uh, a band that we, it's taken us a while to get around to them, actually, yeah. which might be surprising considering how, they're, it's, they're a weird band, Rammstein. I mean, they are genuinely a weird band, but... <laughs> They're also weird in that they are incredibly popular. They are one of the biggest rock bands in the world, and yet people don't talk about them that much, it feels like. Um, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was looking back at like what my experience has been with this band, and I hadn't listened to a full album of Rammstein until the 2019 self-titled album. Oh, wow. Like an oh, actual okay. full album, front to back. Um, obviously knew who they were, have heard many of their songs over the years. Um, when we get into it, I'll, t- I'll tell you, uh, obviously, where I first heard them. Sure, but yeah. definitely didn't have... It's one of those bands, like, as you said, impossible to avoid in the sense of, like, you know of them. You know they're super popular. You see that they do stadium tours around the world and things like that. Uh, and anytime they put out a video for any of their songs it's like must see tv um but yeah like just in the but they're just not the part discourse. of the discussion yeah, much, totally. yeah yeah absolutely and and maybe it's because i mean i don't know it, maybe it's because of like the blend of genres almost that they kind of have or maybe it's because of their theatricality that it, i don't know well, do you think people well, find them hard to categorize well, I, uh, possibly, but also I, th- I think that's not just because of a blend of genres. I think it's because they are, they don't sound like anybody else because they are Rammstein. Who do, yeah. they sound, who do Rammstein sound like? Well, they sound like Rammstein. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know? So maybe that's part of it. It's hard to sort of insert them into the general conversation because they really do just sort of stand apart from every other band that you can think of. I mean, there are Rammstein imitators, we know that, but we also know that they're imitators. Right. Um, you know, the only forerunner, we'll get into this more later, the only forerunner to Rammstein in terms of this sound was Oomph, another German band. But Oomph went in a very different direction to Rammstein um, in in many ways. And that's not to knock them, just saying, you know. So, yeah, it's... I just, I was, I just found it a bit weird when I was... Because I'm not, and I've mentioned this on the Facebook group, somebody asked us a while ago if we were going to cover Rammstein, like several years ago. And I said at the time, I like Rammstein, fine, but I'm not like an Uber fan or anything you know they're not a band that i listen to a huge amount um even though i do have a couple of their albums including this one mutter um and that's why they hadn't come up on the show before i think because they're just not they weren't one of the bands that i immediately thought oh we must do rammstein right but and as i say i was kind of looking stuff up in preparation for this episode you know reading old interviews and stuff and i was like there's actually there's not as much written about this band as you would uh, expect for a band that literally has sellout stadium global tours, you know? You and know what's yet, funny about that, yeah, though? Yeah, it's weird. The fans write about them. Like, yes, when, that's true. Yes. That, like, I, I can't think of many bands off the top of my head that have the amount of fan blogs and Reddit threads and Tumblr, <laughs> like, just like fanatical fan base that discusses everything that this band does now part of that is they give you a lot to unpack with everything that they do especially visually and and performance wise and things like that and so 
But you're right. I think in terms of mainstream, like just looking for old interviews and looking for um, articles about different albums and stuff like that, to your point, not as There's easily just not found. as much out there yeah, as you might think. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think also part of the fan thing is because the band don't talk about themselves much. Like, you know, Till Lindemann, the lead singer, very, very rarely talks to the press, doesn't explain his lyrics. Uh, you know, he's actually a, seems a very sort of reserved person when he's off stage. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think part of it is, and it's not just a language barrier because they all speak quite good English. Sure. Uh, even though they don't sing in it. But yeah, I think it's just because they don't actually, they don't do any more press than they need to, seems to be the the case. And so the press doesn't, I don't know, it's weird. Because like I say, everybody I know who works in metal journalism, and admittedly I'm no longer plugged into that scene as I used to be, but they all loved Rammstein. You know, there's no, there's no, I've never heard a bad word against the band in terms of how they treat the press. But they just don't seem to get the coverage. It's very odd. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that more yep. later. Um, uh, the Leaping ahead to what will be the end of this episode, actually, <laughs> much later, uh, the listener poll, listener choice poll for this season has now ended. Uh, as we record this, it ended uh, last night. I, I closed it down at midnight UK time, as mentioned on Patreon and on our Facebook group, um, we had 52, I think, nominations. So, you know, good number. That's great. Uh, and yeah, we'll make the choice. We'll make a random choice from those nominations at the end of this episode. So I'll talk more about that when we get to it. But that means that the next episode we do will be this volume's uh, listener choice. We've also had three new patrons since the last episode. They are Howard Johnson, Lenny Reed, and John Spooner. Welcome. John Spoon John welcome all. John Spooner is one of my oldest friends. <laughs> um he is the guy that I got into Halloween with. Wow. Who I who I mentioned during our Halloween episode when we talked about Keeper of the Seven Keys. Um so yeah, hello John. I like, hope you're well. Um yeah, John and I have known one another for mm, gotta be getting on for nearly forty years now. <laughs> uh and uh yes, as I say, we're both huge Halloween fans uh, as teenagers, as related on that show. Um, what else before we get on to... Uh, oh, well, okay, so let's talk about the last episode a bit, and I'll just start let's by saying I forgot to mention, and somebody picked me up on this in the Facebook uh, comments, so I'll just say it now, I completely forgot to mention the Alice in Chains MTV Unplugged show, which I really should have done, because it actually... It's arguably the best Unplugged there was, you know, in that era when MTV Unplugged was kind of a big thing and all the yeah. big bands were doing it. Have you? It's arguably the best one of the lot. It is so good. The songs come across so well in that format. Um, I don't know if it's available on, I don't know, DVD or streaming or even YouTube or something, but certainly there are clips of individual songs on YouTube. Um, if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it since it was first broadcast, go and watch it. They are, it's so good. So good. Yeah, it really was good. And I know there was also a conversation about, um, was it Ann Wilson of Heart? Oh, Ann and Nancy, yes, the Wilson sisters, Ann and Nancy Wilson. Yeah, they were, they still are. They have always been huge supporters of other musicians in this, in the Seattle area. Um, to the point where they financially supported 
some of those early grunge bands donating like studio time or paying for demos to be made and that sort of thing because uh yeah you know that is say they've just to their credit they have always been they've used their success to help lift off lift up other bands in the area and so even though you don't think of heart most people think of like the, the song alone which actually isn't that representative of <laughs> of heart the band right you don't think of them as a grunge affiliated band but actually pretty much every musician from that grunge scene sings the praises of the wilson sisters because they did so much for that uh scene and community I'll have to see if I can find the comment here in our Facebook thread, which I'll dive into uh, in just a second. But it was it, it was a thing about them maybe providing backup vocals on this album, but it wasn't oh, this album. Right. It yeah. was it was it Sap. It was one of their other. I think it was one of their EPs that um, right. that that was on. But uh, yeah, well, let's dive into the feedback. So uh, first off, Kenneth said, "Well, that seems like a quick turnaround." And uh, the joke has been that people <laughs> yeah. are surprised uh, when we come out with a monthly episode because there were times over the past year where maybe we weren't exactly hitting that month goal yeah. uh, every time, which is, uh, <laughs> as we've talked about since the beginning of the show, like that will happen from time to time. But uh, Life gets in the way sometimes, yeah. I does. mean, the joke there was that I said, like, no, it, it's been a month. It's just that it seems quick because, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder, uh, I wonder when the first post of that will be on this one as well. Like, wow, you guys are cranking them out quick. Uh, yes, uh, on our monthly schedule that we've that we aspire to stick to. Uh, Matthew said, "This is a rare episode where I've done my homework before listening. It's an album that I've had in my library for some time, although definitely not from when it was new, uh, and I never got into it. Re-listening hasn't really changed my opinion. There's too much of the album doing the thing where it sounds like a Walkman with batteries that are going flat." Hmm. <laughs> Uh, it's probably that's such a sac- great image. I love that. <laughs> yeah, he said it's probably sacrilegious to say, but if I want to listen to Alice in Chains, I'd reach for a more recent Black Gives Way to Blue. He said, "Sorry, still looking forward to listening to the episode. Maybe Anthony and Brian can change my mind." Um, yeah, I mean, so uh, there were other sentiments of like where this fits, not only in uh, AIC's discography, but also just the band for them in general. Um, let's see. It, it Dave, was a fairly common refrain, wasn't it, from a lot of people that they were like, they liked individual songs, but the album as a whole was a little bit too much. Yeah, and I, and mood-wise, right? Because that's something yeah. that we talked about during the episode. So uh, David said, I remember listening to Dirt a lot when it first came out. I then fell out of love with it and haven't listened to it in probably 25 years or so. I still like the debut album, but haven't really listened to anything else by them. Um, and I talked about that in the episode too. It, it, to me, I feel like that first album, it, because it it feels more kind of straight ahead metal. Mm-hmm. It to me is easier to go back and and it's not so emotionally heavy in in the way that Dirt is. It it feels easier to go back and listen to when you're just like, yeah, I'd like to listen to some Alice in Chains. Uh, Phil said uh, yes, but I first have to say, as a chemist slash scientist. A sci-fi metal band named Nucleosynthesis with an album named Epoch of uh, Chirality. Chirality. Uh, Chirality would be right up my alley. And then you said instrumental. Uh, so he was joking about that, obviously. Yeah. Uh, he said, no existential crisis for me as far as the AIC album, though. He said, homework was done in 1992. I bought this album the day it was a release. Loved it from day one. Love it to this day and listen to it a fair amount. And like Anthony, this is my favorite grunge album with Pearl Jam 10 being right behind it. But I put grunge in quotation marks because the uh, like Brian, I discovered AIC with facelift and consider them a metal band. Um, and he shared a cool picture of uh, his his Pearl Jam 10 vinyl, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, he also said, got to 55 minutes in, and the genuine raw emotion in Anthony's voice got me in the feels. Appreciate the openness. And yeah, the whole grunge movement is rife with one tragedy after another. Cobain, Staley, Cornell, uh, Cornell and then in hell, you can add Bennington to that as well. Um, yeah, well, Chester Bennington, remember, took his life, I think it was like on the second anniversary of Chris Cornell doing taking his, or was it on Chris Cornell's birthday? There was some relation there because yeah. they, were, they were good friends, yeah. And who else am I thinking of? Ah, oh, they weren't really grunge, but Blind Melon, was it Shannon Hoon was the singer of Blind Melon? That, that rings a bell, yeah. Um, sang back up on a Guns N' Roses song. Um, but yeah, it, obviously, like, you can just look back at, at that time, and it's uh, it, it's definitely a stamp on that era, for sure. It's just littered with the bodies of talented young people. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was terrible. Uh, Charles Andre said, as a 14-year-old nerd, I would often wander off, sc- uh, off school alone during lunch break and walk 15 minutes to the nearby used record store. There I would gather a bunch of CDs purely based on their cover art and some name recognition from movie soundtracks. Bring the bunch to the clerk and meekly ask if I could listen to them all on their five-disc Hitachi stereo. <laughs> Never <laughs> once had the courage to have an actual conversation with the staff, but they were all good sports and let me listen sometimes for hours to everything I asked for. I had no idea what was cool and what was not, but once I found uh, this antique orange-red album with a hot mummy on it, and it just called to me. I never, under- <laughs> I never heard anything like it before. I felt completely, it felt completely unique, tasteful, strange, and beautifully sad. Dirt spoke to me. I immediately forgot every other album I had brought uh, at the desk, and I listened to it from start to finish. I got to class late, but I had found something to go on page one of my CD binder right next to Corn and Radiohead. It was one of the expensive ones, $10, but it was 100% worth it. Uh, that's a great story. Love yeah. that story. And I'm obviously, I, I back up that sentiment 100%, yeah. It's funny because the local music store that I've talked about, Music Outlet, many times on the show, uh, that is still in my hometown, has a multi-disc player in the store that it's constantly shuffling uh, between things as you're in oh, there cool. listening. And it's all just from the UCD rack that they throw stuff in and, and mix in the new stuff as well. So great memory there. Uh, Joe said, regarding Brian's reaction to grunge, I'm a little older than Anthony, so had uh, experienced more genres, and as much as I loved 80s metal, I was fine with a new direction. I appreciated the raw, fuzzier, but still heavy guitar sounds of Soundgarden, Nirvana, and AIC. Uh, I saw the video for Man in the Box a lot and liked it, uh, but it was Sea of Sorrow that got me interested in AIC. Wood is a cool song, but Them Bones is what made me buy this album. I agree with Brian that it sounds like their, uh, that song sounds like their first album. Unlike Brian, I am willing to skip tracks. Using the magic of CD <laughs> players, I listen to this album a lot without hearing Rooster and some others as often. It's funny because I take a very analog approach approach to like not overplaying songs, where like when bands release singles ahead of the album and stuff like that, I will often only listen to them one time. Just to be like, is that in the vein of what I would hope for from this album? Yes or no. And then I don't listen to it again. I just did that with the Megadeth oh, album wow. that just came out. Like I don't, um, especially now that I'm not, we don't have a, the same amount of like hard rock and metal radio stations that I did have growing up. Like I don't allow songs to get played out to me so that I can listen to them on the album in the place that they're meant to be on that album. I know it's, weird and nerdy like that but but i do now like stop myself from like overly listening to them on youtube or what whatever the case right. may be so i i think i can understand that if you 
especially in the era when you might have heard them on the radio. Um, the sort of stuff over here, there were no radio. There was like literally two hours of radio one a week would play the sort of music that we talk about on this show, you know, and that's basically it. So there was no risk <laughs> of, I don't know, the new Metallica single or whatever being overexposed on the radio. Right. That just wasn't going to happen. Um, so I did actually quite happily buy singles and I would listen to them over and over and over again uh, if I liked them. I mean, the the danger with doing that when bands used to release singles before albums was if they released a single that you didn't like, you might not buy the album. You know, you might put you off and go, oh no, I don't like this new direction. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was always a bit, uh, there was a bit of risk involved there. Whereas obviously these days, that just doesn't happen, I don't think. I was never a big collector of singles unless, and this was often the case, uh, it was a band that I really, truly loved, and there was some sort of exclusive B-side. If it was a song that didn't make the album, if it, like, I didn't care about the live versions of ones, like, that wasn't enough to get me to buy a a single on cassette or, or, or even, you know, vinyl. But if it was something that, like, didn't make the album, and it's not on another album or something like that, then I would pick that up. So I definitely picked up my share of uh, Megadeth singles. Def Leppard, uh, the singles uh, for Hysteria, like with um, Ring of Fire and Ride Into the Sun, amazing songs that should have been on the album that didn't get put on the album. So we're worth picking up the singles for, stuff like that. But yeah, I I was never big into the singles. I've kind of always been a full album. Um, I, I was never really bothered about songs that weren't on the album, but I would, not so much live version, but I would happily buy singles if they had demo versions of songs, especially album songs, yeah. uh, on the B-side. Or, you know, obviously when you're buying a CD single, it's just like extra tracks. I absolutely love those, and I still do. I love hearing like demo versions of songs that you know you know you already know them in their final form as it were in the fully produced studio version to then hear the demo version which is you know might just be like some drum machine and you know one guitar or something um i love that i I find that fascinating and really interesting uh danny said so i love this album it is one of my faves and probably my top wallow slash sad slash in my feelings album just above ocean machine by devin townsend and woods and woods five gray skies and electric light um by woods of epris i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right which if you want to get dark is extremely dark to quote uh wikipedia a link to an incomplete promotional version of the album was treated tweeted by Earache Records shortly after David Gold's death on December 21st, 2011. Um, oh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm just not familiar with that album. It, it's, it's pronounced Eep. It's, uh, or, well, I assume it is if it's named after the French, um, I say French, actually, it might be Belgian uh, town of Eep. Uh, there was a lot of stuff went on there in the, during the First World War. Um, yeah, they were formed in, yeah, in Windsor, Ontario, so there isn't a place called Eep in Canada that they're, from so i assume yeah it's just pronounced eep and danny agreed with you uh to riff on anthony johnson's bit every time i listen to this album i think that this is my favorite aic song with every song um which was basically your reaction to that too right yep <laughs> very much oh <laughs> uh, let's see stewart said so i tried again to like alice in chains and failed again just doesn't really hook me. If anything, it feels almost too polished to be grunge, but not really metallic enough otherwise. And I like grunge. Maybe it's maybe it's that I approached 
it from uh, the alternative rock side, Sonic Youth, Pixies, Husker Du, rather than the metal side, as I was tired of seeing glam band after glam band in the pages of Kerrang! And Thrash seemed to be reaching some sort of endpoint. He said, oh, uh, and I own no Pearl Jam either, aside from the Neil Young album Mirrorball, where they were the backing band. Uh, they made an adequate crazy horse. All right. What's his take on that? I, I can see that, actually, yeah. Compared to those very much, like, you know, subculture, underground, uh, or you know, Pixies not so much maybe these days, but, you know, compared to those bands, yes, Alice in Chains probably do sound quite polished, but compared to most metal bands, they sound quite rough. <laughs> so they're very much straddling that line, I think. Uh, we talked earlier just in, in this thread and, and in general about how uh, them bones felt almost like it could have been on facelift, like it mm. was that sort of nod to the old school. And so it was interesting to me that both uh, We Die Young and Them Bones are about two minutes and 30 seconds long, and they start each of those two albums. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. And so very sort of straight ahead, you know, no-nonsense mm-hmm. songs to start both of those. Uh, Craig said, great episode. AIC were my favorite of the big four grunge bands, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana being the other three there. Stone Temple Pilots would be a joint top spot, but they don't count, he said. I remember seeing AIC supporting Megadeth in Manchester. They weren't billed as playing. The Almighty were supporting. Uh, So I didn't know at the time who they were, but I remember liking them. I was thrilled many years later to learn it was them, as it it was the the main reason I went to see Metallica at Milton Keynes was to see Alice in Chains, and they were replaced by Therapy. Uh, Anyway, absolute classic album that I still listen to a lot. I think I may have been at that Milton Keynes gig. That rings a bell. That does um, My God, imagine imagine thinking you're going to get the Almighty and Alice in Chains come out. I mean, I have nothing against the Almighty, but they they were very much not. You know, <laughs> I was trying to think. <laughs> wow. I don't know that I've been to a show where there was a switch on the bill without like knowing ahead of time. Like, there's right, been plenty right. of shows where it's like, oh, so and so dropped out of the of the tour and this band came out. But I can't, I don't think but I've you've been known to about one it. Yeah. where it's been like, oh. This wasn't the band I, that I thought we were going to see tonight, so that must be pretty jarring, especially if one of the bands is someone that you're really excited about going to see. Well, and like I say, and especially if their replacement is a band that really do not sound right. <laughs> anything like the band you're expecting to see. <laughs> uh, I found the comment, it was Todd's, that said, great episode, although I have to say I was shocked that with so much discussion of great two-part harmony singing that there was not even a passing mention of Anne and Nancy Wilson's vocals on Rooster. Oh, there you go. That's where the mention came from, yeah. Um, And I, so I went back and looked at the liner notes and stuff like that, and I didn't see that they provided backing notes for the album, but I did see that at least one of the Wilson sisters was on, uh, I think they did a cover on... Yeah, it was Anne Wilson did a cover of Rooster uh, a couple of years ago that she released. I don't know if she actually released it or just put out a video on YouTube. Um, Which may be what Todd's referring to. He, to, to be clear, he didn't say uh, yeah. that it was specifically about the version on the album. So he, he might certainly right. have just been referring to that. But uh, yeah, go check that out. There's a link that uh, David provided in the replies to that comment where you can check it out on YouTube. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tordeth said, I can say this about Alice in Chains. They are a band. <laughs> <laughs> i think that i think that kind of uh he yeah. said i i sense a lot of parallels between aic and twisted sister aic did to, did glam to brun to grunge and twisted sister did like loungy rock to gritty heavy metal 
Um, <laughs> I, I would need to process that a little bit more yeah. before I could agree <laughs> or disagree uh, with that. Uh, let's see. Andrew said, what a treat. I haven't listened to this in about two decades other than favorites playlist picks of uh, Down in the Hole and Wood. He said, this is one of four albums that defined grunge for me. Uh, he said, and most people. Never mind, Bad Motor Finger, 10, and Dirt, anyone? Uh, and Pretty was so much, yeah. thoroughly overplayed in the 90s that I have barely listened to any of them since the turn of the millennium. So it's with a mix of warm, uh, miserable nostalgia and forgetful old man freshness that I was able to listen to it now. <laughs> Just brilliant and actually a lot heavier than I remember it to be. Do no doubt to the terrible means I had of listening to this back then. I suspect it'll overplay very quickly again if I spin it too much, but giving it a listen for this was an absolute pleasure. Warm, um, miserable nostalgia. That's great. <laughs> I don't know if we talk about, like, we definitely talk about, like, the production of albums back in the day versus, like, the production that's available on many albums today. Obviously, there's the whole, you know, remastering and all that kind of stuff. But um, I prefer the original recordings of these albums like like for so many of the albums that we listen to from back in the day i don't like when they get like fully remastered i don't like when they get cleaned up at all right and but i think and that's the thing is that a lot of remastering these days is about just sort of yeah, cleaning things up and making sure that you can hear every instrument, you know, properly across the full sonic spectrum and all that sort of thing. And I've, I, I'm really, I'm generally not a fan, but I am also, I'm self-aware enough to know that that's simply because it's not how the songs sound in my head. hundred percent. I'm yes. so used to hearing them in that old mix that it just sounds wrong. But if I was coming to it fresh hearing it for the first time maybe i would be fine with it maybe i wouldn't care um but I, i'm generally for that reason i'm generally against it just because you know that most people buying this and listening to this are people who will be familiar with you know you wouldn't put out a remaster unless it was a popular album to start right. with so you know most of the people buying it and listening to it are those who are mostly familiar with the original uh how many of those people prefer the remaster? I don't know. I know some do. I know I know that there are some people out there who genuinely prefer these remastered versions, but I have to figure that they're a fairly small percentage. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I have no data to go, uh, you know, to sort of base that on. I'm just going by my own reaction and talking to, you know, sort of other friends and fans of bands that have put out remasters. But generally speaking, yeah, I'm like, why? what's the point? You know, it, if it doesn't sound like the version that we've listened to and that we fell in love with for all these years, then, I don't know, why not just put out a live version? Well, and what really bothers me, because as you said, like, people who are coming to it later might prefer uh, the newer version of that. What what bothers me, though, is when it replaces the old one, you can't find the old one anymore. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, um, like, I think that's the case with, like, most of the... 2004 like remasters that Dave Mustaine did of, of the old Megadeth albums like those are the ones that show up if you go you Oh, know, what he actually you, deleted the old version I think so like I I know I think for Spotify and like Amazon and stuff like that if you go which obviously makes the case for physical media and like having your own um copies of things and stuff like that but yeah I did like I'm a fan of make the options available 
and people can come to whatever version they, you know, they want. Mm. Not a fan of, of replacing the older stuff. Uh, Simon said, such a great album. I haven't put it on for ages as felt I needed a break from endless, yes, endless listens. Time to reverse that. Thanks, guys. So it's interesting to me that we do have a lot of people on this thread who do still listen to it and have listened to it countless times. And then people who have really put it away for, in some right, cases, as decades, a product of the era, a hundred percent, and are coming back to it now. So pretty cool. I, I do like the the revisiting aspect of that. Um, Kenneth said, "Just finished the episode and really enjoyed it. It was fun knowing the album as well as I do, but not being particularly invested in it. Great chat all around." He said, something I find interesting is grunge's misery porn. And I say this as an ex-goth. It's just so <laughs> very. Uh, from Pearl Jam's teenage angst, Soundgarden's suicide references, AIC's drug problems, and Nirvana's I hate myself and want to die, it's also, it's also po-faced that even as an angsty teen, I found it a bit much. It's the same kind of uh, musical self-flagellation I find so off-putting with bands like Linkin Park. Saying all of that, I love 90s-era swans, so I might just be a grumpy hypocrite. Yeah, and then I made the joke that, like, 90s-era swans isn't really about (laughs) (laughs) self-flagellation. If you know Uh, anything about swans. (laughs) (laughs) Joe said... uh, Probably part of the reaction against 80s hair bands, which were all partying, pretty girls, adolescent humor and such, going against those bands in various ways and trying to tackle more serious themes, Um, to which Phil also chimed in that he agreed with that as well. So, yeah, I think looking at it, too, from like those different sort of eras of music, right, and really trying to rebel against what came before. Exactly. And kind of wash that away. And grunge definitely did that. for sure. Yeah, and as we talked about on the episode, it was very much a reaction to the kind of, you know, party hard, uh, hard rock sort of popularity of what had become metal in the late 80s. Yeah, I mean, you can look at the themes of that stuff and see which held up better over time. I mean, you could argue certainly that the, the stuff that Alice in Chains is talking about on this album is very much relevant and um, feels of today. When you go back and listen to some white snake album and some of the lyrics on those albums it it really doesn't yeah <laughs> match up with uh, you know what today is and uh and it's hard i mean as someone who grew up and and still obviously loves you know 80s hair metal and things like that it just doesn't particularly lyrically does not hold up does not now. age well at all no yeah. it does yeah. not age well at all um let's see where was i david said uh first awesome episode dirt is a classic in every sense of the word i'd like to plug aic's two eps as well i think jar of flies might be my favorite collection of songs from aic and sap is a fun one too i miss the album slash ep cadence they had in those early years also thanks for covering two of my favorite albums back to back mutter is a great ramstein album and also a true classic looking forward to the discussion um yeah the ep thing I don't know, man. Like that, there was that sort of cadence at one point in time of like the album, then an EP, then an album, then an EP, and I I feel like some of that is captured in the band camp era of today. I feel like bands are more okay with putting out an EP as the main release now than as something in between major like studio releases because there's that kind of pressure to keep in the forefront of people's mind right and to listen and you see a lot of bands will just release singles 
you know, single after single after single after single over a period of time. But I feel like the EP is still pretty strong, maybe just not in that same cadence as it was back in the day. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. I think the iTunes era basically killed uh, the sort of the album EP cadence because uh, albums just kind of, you know, apart from to old farts like us, albums yeah, just don't, right. don't really matter anymore. Um, and there's no reason also, there's no reason not to put out an EP. If those are the songs you have, you know, if you've gotten together and you, hey, we've got five new songs uh, and, you know, but aren't currently writing a sixth. If that's kind of, if you've reached the end of one of your songwriting cycles, as it were, then yeah, why not put them out? There's nothing stopping you. There's no reason not to, as you say, Bandcamp and streaming and what have you. They don't care if it's five songs or 15 songs. Makes absolutely no difference on those platforms. So I think you're right that people are more willing to put out EPs as full releases, but also just more willing to put out EPs and short EPs sometimes as well Yep. as a whole, because like I say, it just kind of doesn't matter. Um, in the era of physical media, an EP was a way of frankly making quite a bit more money from a popular band in between album releases. Now I'm not suggesting that Alice and James did it only for that reason, but the point is the record company would look kindly upon a popular band doing that sort of thing yeah. if they knew it would sell because in the CD era it was like printing money um but like i say yeah in the, in in the in the modern era ever since basically iTunes made the whole hey you don't need to buy the whole album you can just buy one track and now with streaming you don't even have to buy anything um it's no surprise to me that that just kind of went away because uh, yeah the commercial imperative is no longer there uh, Steve said, Dear Lord, I love this album. Rooster is probably my favorite AIC song, along with Down in a Hole. At times, the second saved me from myself. Just knowing that someone was feeling this way, uh, the way I felt, worthless, not worth saving, destroying myself. My early to mid-20s time of life was a roller coaster, and this, along with LOA, managed to get me through them. Great dissection, sirs, as usual. Um, Yeah, I mean, he he... We've talked about it before on the show, but just looking back over the course of your life and the songs or the albums or just the, you know, the music that saved you, right? Yeah. Either from yourself or from um, a situation you were in or any of those things. I think for many of us who are getting on in years and, ha and music has remained such a huge part of our lives, somewhere in that journey is those songs and those albums that got us through and really cemented the fact that music was always going to be therapy for us a, a, a part of our lives you know a, a, a kind of um you know a ray of light no matter what the genre or what the you know what the kind of music it was but that it was it was one of those things that we used to help us get through absolutely so true yeah i mean i yeah i, I couldn't agree more it's like it's i mean you're right music is therapy but also more than that just music as well i suppose this is therapy in a way uh as kind of something that says hey you're not the only person who feels yes. this way of, of being heard right yeah. and being seen right. and, and being heard exactly exactly or feeling like you're being heard yeah exactly like alone. steve said like just knowing that someone was feeling the way i felt yep like that is an I mean, I mean so that's, that's not even that's just the human condition, isn't it? Yes. You know, that's that's not even uh, only 
um, uh, solely you know, reserved for music, but it is music is a way that a lot of, especially young people, find that relation and you know discover that yeah they're not alone in uh, ways they might be feeling or thoughts they're having or emotions they're uh, going through. Um, it, it's it comes back almost to it's. I always found it a bit. Not strange. That's not really fair to say. But you, you know, when you're a kid and you're really into music, and then you kind of somehow discover that there are people who just don't care about music that much, and it feels really weird, doesn't it? Oh, totally. <laughs> you know, and you're like, but but how can you not? How can you not be into music? Uh, and then, of course, you realise that actually there are quite a lot of people who just don't care or think about music that much. Um, but for those who do. A lot of them, I I think, certainly my experience, and I mean that also from the people I know, not just my own personal experience, a lot of the people who do get, quote-unquote, get into music at a young age are doing so because it speaks to them in some way, because there is something about it that goes, yeah, you're not alone. Um, And there are people out there who, you know, feel the same way you do or have these same thoughts. And it's not even always in the lyrics, just musically sometimes. There can be something there that touches you in that way and makes you go, oh, okay, yeah, this is actually how I'm feeling. And the um, amazing thing is that you can go back. like, and, and that's why I love us doing this show, and that's why I love this community of listeners that has just grown with us and and has these amazing discussions. Like, it, for me, like, I there's not a day that goes by that I'm not listening to music and the older you get and the more your, your own life experiences change and things like that. One of my favorite things is to listen to songs that I grew up with and have them resonate with me in a different way now, Mm. or to have a band that I grew up with be of a same age as I am now. You know, you know, maybe when I was a teenager, they were eight, seven or eight years older than me, and that seemed like an eternity. But now, you know, we're yeah, <laughs> the band themselves <laughs> are in their early fifties. You know, when I'm in my late forties or something like that. And so, to hear the shift in perspective where bands that I grew up with are now coming at it from a a place where they're reflecting on where they're at in life right now, I, I, I Armored Saint really does that for me a lot. Like John Bush, a lot of his stuff now you know, makes me feel that way. But like going back and listening to even some of the hair metal and listening to certain songs and just thinking about my perspective then and my perspective now. And it's, um, it is, I, I am constantly examining my own feelings and identity and, uh, you know, just outlook on life through music, like on a daily basis. Yeah. And like I say, I think there's just, there's a certain kind of person and we are clearly two of those people. And I think a lot of our listeners are also uh, who do that, you know, and for whom, yeah, the music actually, it is, it's not just background. It's not just something that we listen to in the car or whatever, you know, it is, it forms a part of our identity. Um, and like I say, I think the the day when you realize that that's not true of everyone <laughs> can actually be a bit of a shock, <laughs> can actually, you know, kind of wake you up and go, oh, hang on, what? <laughs> Am I yeah. the weird one? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, then, and then, like your immediate question is like, well, then what does that for you? Right. Like, yeah, what, exactly. Like, well, if and if what not does music, that in the yeah. way that music does? Like, yeah. like it, it is a very sort of like I don't that does not compute uh, sort of thing. 
A couple more comments here. Andy said, great episode on a terrific decade-defining classic of an album. It's one I don't revisit much because I always remember it as almost cartoonishly depressive and ghoulish. (laughs) But when you're in that kind of mood, it absolutely hits. Parts of this album are genuinely scary. uh, And like you say, it sounds incredible. I was never a fan of their other records, and it's tough to overlook how much the album is about suicide and drug addiction, topics I generally don't let darken my door. Um, He said, also, I think it's funny how you both kind of got a bonus pick this volume, seeing as how excited Anthony was for this and how excited Brian was for Trivium. Great stuff, boys. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. There are over... Yeah, I'll I'll do uh, one more because there's over a hundred comments on this episode. So please go to the Facebook page. Um, A lot of talk about that episode. Well, you know, again, it's a classic album. And, you know, even for people who for whom it doesn't do a lot or people who maybe don't listen to it as much as, you know, I have, for example, it's one of those um, you you can't ignore it because it was such a bit like the album we're going to talk about today. It was such a huge album on the scene that uh, you can't help but have an opinion on it. Yeah, and that, that's actually probably a good one to end it on. But go check out the the Facebook group. I mean, this is a great discussion with a lot of different viewpoints on what this album meant to people, how often they've revisited it over the years, um, and just, you know, sort of the, the place and time that it was put out in. So appreciate, again, everyone who jumps into these discussions and, and shares. Um, it's a great group. It really is. Yeah. And you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Um, and I should have mentioned actually when I talked about the listener choice poll, again, I'll come to that again later, but uh, that's from all our lovely patrons. Uh, you can join them at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Um, and uh, yeah, we uh, we love them all uh, because they help keep the show going and they uh, show their support for us and for the show um, through Patreon, which is lovely. So, Rammstein, or Rammstein. Uh, (laughs) Man, I mean, what is there to say about this band that hasn't been said? Even though, as I say, they're not... It is so strange how they kind of don't form part of the common discourse uh, in a way that you would imagine a band of their size do. Um, But they were... I mean, so let's go with the facts. They were formed in Berlin in 1994. They're all from the former East Germany. Um, although obviously they were formed post-German reunification. Till Lindemann is the vocalist, Richard Krusper, lead guitar, Paul Landers, rhythm guitar, Oliver Riedel on bass, Christoph Schneider on drums, and Christian Lorenz, better known as Flacker, on keyboards. And that's the same members now. Unbelievable. Which, which is one of the most amazing things for a band with six members to never have any lineup changes. Incredible. Um, I, I I mentioned that I you know looked up a lot of uh, interviews and stuff with the band in preparation for this, and one of the things that came out was that the way they operate, and this is actually quite common for bands f- formed of people from the former Eastern Bloc, <laughs> I found, is that they operate as a complete democracy, like uh, which people have complained about, like producers have complained about uh, and stuff, because whenever there's any argument, they go out in the parking lot and have like a two hour long discussion and debate about it <laughs> to make to make a decision. But to their credit, when the decision's made, everybody then goes along with it, as is what should happen in a democracy. Um, but it has apparently led 
The reason that they've stayed together, I gather, is simply that they have, they treat it like a family. They do fall out from time to time. They do argue, they do debate, but they know that Rammstein is all six of them and, and that's what it takes. And if that means giving one of them the space to go off and do a personal project, or even if it means taking time away from touring for a year or two or something, they've been willing to do it for the sake of the band's survival, which is quite unusual in this day and age. Well, I mean, you, the most unusual thing you said at the top, right, is the same, same lineup since 1994. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah. And yes, and I also had read through some interviews where they talked about that and that there were times where that almost started to fracture and they were able to kind of pull it back from from the band falling apart and the band yeah. kind of breaking up and and some of it was around the time of this album. Yes. Uh, it was I'm trying to find the the quote here. Um bu- 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 bu. It well, was it, after oh, the uh, so they did the first two albums. So this was the album where I think it was uh Richard uh, Kruspa, the lead guitar player, who was starting to get, was starting to kind of develop the ideas for the songs on his own. Right. And was starting then, to almost take over creative direction of the band. Yeah. Yes. And then got really sort of precious about not wanting anything to change. And they had, you know, a, a pretty bad falling out around it to where they had to sort of all get back on the same page. And there was a, a great quote in one of the, um, uh, Christoph said in the early days, we always fought about everything and that was sometimes not nice, but in the end we had mostly exciting results, uh, from the first album, everybody was involved to the same level, but on the second and third albums, this one, uh, being the third album, Richard tried to lead the band and that reached the point where we couldn't stand it anymore. And we almost broke up. And they go on to discover to talk about like I think he moved away at one point and um, right what what happened was around around this time uh, CRISPR also moved to New York um, or I say around this time after this time I should say and uh, basically took a break from the band and that time away from each other was actually re- sounds like it was really important because he thought well does the band need me. Like, can they actually carry on without me? They were thinking, like, the same thing, essentially, but also fairly confident that they could. And then when he returned, I think it was about six months, he said, when he then sort of flew back over to Europe to start, you know, practicing with them and stuff again, he realized that actually, yeah, they had been doing okay without him, but they also realized that he was an important part of of what made Rammstein, again, that it took all six of them. Uh, and so that seemed to just kind of cement yeah. things quite a bit. Like he was, he came back more humble, but they were also welcomed him back because they realized they did need him. Well, and they did, uh, there was an interview that they did, I think with rock hard magazine or something. This was on a fan blog. This is what I was talking about. Like you find so much information yeah. on these fan blogs. Uh, this ba- blog is called Linda fan and it's, uh, Oh, is that the one on Tumblr? Yes. I think I saw that as well, yeah. <laughs> so, but like they pull quotes from this interview that they did where Richard actually talks about some of that stuff. Um and so a couple things that he says about that time. He said it was never a question of physical confrontation when he talks about like the the struggles that they had. He said, um it is clear that I took too much space in the group. 
I was the artistic director. However, I tried in vain to realize that Ramstein is a democracy, uh, a group of six participants. I did not know how to limit my influence. I really should have moved away from the others from myself. I had to think my creativity was not supposed to suppress the creativity of others. Mm. Uh, I had a chance to, to kind of realize that. Um, One of the things that I noticed time and again when reading, because again, they, they don't haven't they don't do that much press. Um, but one of the things I kept coming across when they do talk to the press is how honest they are. All of them, not just CRISPR, but Schneider as well, talking to them about you know sort of relationships in the band and Riedel. They're really, really honest about how things have gone in the band and that, you know, when they have fallen out or why they've fallen out and they're self-aware, like that's a really self-aware thing for CRISPR to realize, to go like, oh yeah, actually my creativity was suppressing others in the band and that's not right. That's a really, when do you ever hear from a lead guitarist as well? (laughs) I mean, really, when do you ever hear from uh, someone in a popular group ever? Right, right. Especially, yeah, one of the principal songwriters. It's Speak about that. You know, remarkable. I realize it is remarkable. Um, it's it's truly unbelievable. And so, but like these, this kind of thing makes me more interested in this band. Like we said, that's what's helped them survive. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, this is the type of thing that makes me want to dig more into their discography, right? Because, I mean, just first of all, the fact that they've been able to be around for this long. And there was other articles that came out around their most recent release, which came out this year, uh, Zeit, which people are interpreting to potentially mean that it's the final album from the band, uh, just because some of the lyrics and stuff like that, that this might be the end of the band. But the fact that they've been around since 94 and through thick and thin been able to kind of get to a point where they've stuck together is incredible. It really Um, is. Yeah. Especially for a band this popular, because as you see time and time and time again, in every music documentary and every book written about, you know, what it's like to be in a band, it's that success eventually tears the band apart. Yeah. So the fact that these guys are playing stadiums. Right. And 28 years later, uh, still all the same members. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? It, it, it is crazy. And uh, I was actually reading an article where uh, Tobias from Ghost was talking about how Ramstein was an inspiration for him. And he, I pulled a quick quote. He said, if there's a comparison to make, it's better for us to compare ourselves to more contemporary bands ra- rather than my idols. He said, all those 60s bands, it feels like they were 100 years ago now. Um, but even talking about ACDC, Metallica, or Iron Maiden, it was a different time and age. But if I compare us to a band that's at least a little bit closer to me generationally, it would be Ramstein. I have no intention of sounding like them, but as a visionary, it's motivating for me to see how a band that were doing arenas, you know, up until a few years ago, are now playing stadiums. Um, you know, he said it's it's one thing to play arenas; it's another to sell out arenas. He said they're a fictional sort of band, highly themed, and they put on a show as opposed to Pearl Jam, who go up in normal streetwear and play on a carpet. And who seem like you're down-to-earth, well-educated bros. He said, so I see Ramstein as a sort of guidepost that I'm working toward. And Which I just is, thought that was really interesting. I mean, I think you can see that in Ghost stage shows as well, because the theatre of it, much like with Ramstein, is clearly a very important part of that band's live performance. But, I mean, that's the other thing. Who, whoever could have imagined that a heavy metal band singing exclusively in German... <laughs> 
would become one of the biggest bands in the world and play sold-out stadium tours around the globe. That is just... Well... It's amazing to think about. They talked about that a bit in a Kerrang! interview. They said, we tried singing in English when we first started out, Christoph was saying, uh, but we realized that it didn't suit us, and we realized that Till's lyrics, which are very strong, don't translate well. So we decided to continue singing in German, and people used to come up to us and say, oh, what a fantastic band you are. It's such a shame that you sing in German. And he (laughs) said they were basically saying that we had no future outside of Germany, that we had no chance of making it anywhere else. And that, like you see throughout, as you said, they're very sort of honest in a lot of their interviews when they do do them. And um, they also seem to really relish the fact that they are constantly proving people wrong. Right. And they've done everything on their own terms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. 100%, yeah. Um, I mean, so there's a couple of things there. First of all, that's true about Till's lyrics. Like, I I did high school German. I am certainly by no means fluent. But I know enough to read his lyrics and see that there is wordplay in there, which doesn't translate to English. Um, right. You know, not that you can't do wordplay in English, but it's obviously, it's of a very different style. The Japanese is the same. There's a lot of wordplay in Japanese that simply does not translate into other languages. Not just English, but any other language. Um uh, and so, yeah, you you would lose something if he was writing in English. I'm sure he would he wouldn't just write it in German then translate it. I'm sure because he does speak good English to right. Lindemann. I've heard interviews with him speaking English. Um, I'm sure he would write them in English first, but they would not be the same because he couldn't use the same kind of wordplay. So there's that, you know, and and obviously his voice as well. He's he's got such a fantastic voice that sounds so great in German. Um, Absolutely. You know, it just, you can't now imagine him doing it any other way. Um, But also, it was, it was unusual at the time, you know, like just hearing anybody, especially a rock band singing in German, uh, was unusual because even like German goth bands and stuff would sing in English, um, generally not in in German. There are very, very few, one or two. Lame Immortal, for example, they often sing in German, but you know, generally most bands, rock bands, would sing in English. So it was unusual, but it also made them a source of humor for a while. I don't know if you, and this gets into where we first heard them. When Rammstein were first kind of coming on the scene and first having a little bit of success and a little bit of awareness, and this is purely in the UK, I don't know what it was like you know, in other countries, but in the UK, there was, because it was so unusual and because of the style of their sound, um, for a while, it got to the point where suddenly anything, anything sung in German was cool, (laughs) no matter what it actually was, to the point that some people even parodied it. And it was kind of seen as a gimmick for a while. And then, of course, you know, later Rammstein became so huge and so popular that now it's just, it's normal for them. It's not, it's clearly not a gimmick because they've done it throughout their whole careers. And that argument, thank goodness, has kind of fallen by the wayside. But for a while there, it was almost seen as a gimmick to, you know, that they were doing it deliberately to stand out uh, and to sing about nonsense. But because it was in German, people wouldn't understand it and therefore would think it was cool. So it's a really weird time for them i think um and i I wonder if that might be why it took a few albums before they really had 
a breakout in the English speaking world, at least. Well, you you want to talk about like the Mandela effect? If you would have asked me, if I had to take a lie detector test and you would have asked me, where did you first hear Rammstein? Mm-hmm. I would have said they were on the Mortal Kombat soundtrack from the 1995 Mortal Kombat movie. Really? I would have, and I would have believed that. No, that's Fear Factory, dude. <laughs> no, they're on the Mortal Kombat Annihilation soundtrack oh. from 1997. Right. They're, they were on the Matrix soundtrack. Yes. But well, I swear to you, I would have told you that it was the first Mortal Kombat movie that they were on that soundtrack, and it was Duhas that was on. That's what I would have told you. Is but that that's on I Lost heard... Highway, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you what it's not on. The Mortal Kombat soundtrack. I don't know. I know and that. Like, <laughs> that. And that is what I would, I literally would have sworn to you. But I'm that... wondering if that's because it, that was on the Lost Highway soundtrack, which was only a couple of years after the Mortal Kombat movie. And so maybe that's why you're thinking that it was pre-annihilation. Well, same just... with The Matrix. And so, yeah, you know, so, but I would have told you, well, the first song I ever heard from, you know, Rammstein was Duhast, and it was on the Mortal Kombat soundtrack. And yeah, they're on the Mortal Kombat <laughs> Annihilation soundtrack with a different song. It's not even Duhast that's on that <laughs> song. That's on that thing. But I would have sworn to you. And I, and I feel like that was, I wasn't the only one who, associated them with that particular soundtrack so it was yes a hundred percent um and it like to this day like i still go back and double check like are they are you sure they're not on the mortal Kombat (laughs) soundtrack like is there another version that they're on like uh, like i just so associated them like with that soundtrack and that movie and everything like so it just um really threw me when i found out like oh no they're not on that I'm like, uh, that blows my mind. So, okay, so I know that a lot of people's first exposure to them was the Lost Highway soundtrack, but I just actually checked, and they had two songs on there, which I, I knew that, one of which was the eponymous Rammstein, but I thought the other one was Duhast, and it wasn't, apparently. It was Hairata Mish. Dude, that's what I'm telling you. Like, <laughs> there is an alternate universe where we all, like... Uh, <laughs> it's like it blows me away with that so but what i don't want to lose is you 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 had mentioned another point about um till's singing in german and i think what impresses me the most about this band is that and it was the same with this album like my first like three listens through this album front to back i didn't even look at lyrics right and so the way that i have always listened to this band even though i don't have a huge history with them is through emotion like through like having right, no right. idea of what the lyrics are but even when you don't understand the words that Till is singing his delivery and the way that he builds drama and emotion and punctuates things and and just it feels like you're listening to a story even if you have no idea what that story is yeah and it's well, super impressive and then when you dig into the lyrics i mean some of them are just like bonkers and very um silly but some of them are very deep and yeah, well, really powerful I mean, we'll talk more about the lyrics when we get to the songs for sure but it was this album as well where he really started to develop well not where he started to develop but where he did fully develop that style which obviously now is you know going forward he's used all the time but if you listen to the first two albums Hertzleid and Zinzucht 
they his delivery is a lot less varied. Okay, There's a lot less variety in it, uh, and isn't as accomplished. Isn't as controlled. Now, that's not to say they're bad by any means. They're good albums and Till's performance on them is good, but. Uh, you can tell that he took a step up with this album. Uh, I think it was because um, he's not formally trained at all, uh, which is quite surprising, actually, given his sort of almost operatic tone yeah. uh, and the way he performs. I can't remember. Um, maybe I noted it. I'm sure I noted it, a note of it somewhere. But basically, yeah, between the second album and, and this one and Muta, he made an effort to just sing better and you know control his vocals better and make more of an instrument of his voice uh and it really shows on this album compared to the first two i think really really shows um, but just to think about like how much how powerful that is right and how and how basically they're kind of doing double duty right like like they're with the language barrier and i and i know uh since so many bands even who speak other languages choose to sing you know in english yeah were were uh spoiled and and privileged in that way right but just thinking about you know the the power of that collective effort to basically make it a non-factor that that yeah. it's in a language i don't understand you know right it, it really just it doesn't matter at all yeah um so i talking about where we first heard them i definitely did hear them before the lost Highway soundtrack i think it was um, because they used to get played their first couple of singles or songs from their first couple of albums, I should say. I don't know if they were actually singles. W- used to get played in uh the local goth industrial club that I used to go to in Birmingham. Now, exactly which songs they were, I couldn't be sure. I assume just because they were single releases that it was probably stuff like Asher to Asher or uh, and Durit so good. Um, stuff that there was videos for and, you know, they released as singles. Um, but I know that I was listening to them, or at least I had heard them, I should say. I didn't own any albums at that point. Before Lost Highway, which did really, was kind of a breakthrough for a lot of people's awareness of who Rammstein were and the fact that they even existed. And then from that point onwards, then shortly after that came this album and they really kind of exploded. Um, but it was it was strange how they were... Like I say, originally it was like the industrial scene that kind of took to them because of that that early sound they had, which was very, you know, almost sort of KMFDM you could make a comparison with, um, uh, who were also beloved in the industrial scene. And then, of course, they sort of not went away from the industrial side of things, but just sort of expanded and developed to become a much more, uh, well, not traditional metal band, but a, a more you know, people look at them and go, oh yeah, they're a heavy metal band rather than an industrial band. But what's funny about that, of course, is that they were one of the pioneers of what, I'm not sure if it was called this at the time, but what's now known anyway is the Neue Deutsche Harte movement, um, which just means like new hard German. Um, They were actually, they weren't the first band in that scene. The first band was a band called Oomph, um, who predated them by a few years. But I didn't hear Oomph until later myself, until later in the early 2000s. I'm not sure many people over here did. They put out an album called Wahrheit oder Pflicht, which means truth or dare. Uh, and that was their, that was their, like their eighth album. <laughs> it was in 2004. And that was where I 
first really heard them. But of course, by then, that was many years after I'd been listening to Rammstein. So they were definitely my introduction to that movement. But the funny thing about it is that even though, and this alludes to what I said earlier, even though the Neue Deutsche Heart bands, you can see where they're all coming from. It's all very simplistic rhythms, simple riffs, but very, very loud, hard, distorted guitars and what have you. But they all sound really different. Like, Oomph are basically writing pop songs, but played by a heavy metal band. Um, Rammstein's stuff, even though it's simple, you know, because of the way it's constructed and the chords they use and what have you, nobody would call it pop music. Right. Um, so, yeah, quite different. And then there are other later bands that came in the, the same movement. And again, they all sound quite different. Uh, and well, a bit like the grunge scene, I suppose, in that you can see the commonalities, but also you wouldn't mistake any of the bands for the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. For me, this album just in general made me appreciate them more as a band and want to dig more into all of their music. Right. Um, I have listened to the 2019 self-titled album and the newest album multiple times through both haven't looked at the lyrics of either of those albums so i'm looking forward to jumping in because i almost feel like that's how i want to listen to them now is just listen to them first and then later look at the lyrics yes because i like i really enjoyed that about listening to this album is like having really formed some ideas about it before i even looked at a lyric Right. I thought was a nice way to be able to enjoy this album and then dive into it and and go deeper. And so, yeah. One, one thing I will say about that, I mean, I wouldn't discourage you from doing that, but I will kind of warn you a little, is that this is generally accepted as their best album mm-hmm. and like the one that has the least filler on it. Um, the, the, late, the, the albums before this and the albums after this, they're not bad albums by any means, but they're all kind of, there are none of them that don't have a few filler tracks and, you know, sort of go up and down in quality here and there. Uh, whereas this, not to say this doesn't have one or two tracks that, are, that do dip a little, but just as a general average bar of excellence, this is the album, which is one of the reasons I chose it. Um, yeah, it is you know. very, it's a very good listen all the way through. It, yeah, it's consistent. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, the, the, and the funny thing about that, actually, in relation to their f- their previous two albums, is that this album was quite different for the in the way they made it for the band. They went into it without having tried out songs already on the road, which was not the case with their first two albums. Uh-huh. Uh, and they deliberately wanted to make something that sounded more like a rock band than the sort of techno-industrial sounds that they incorporated into the first two albums. There's a quote from Richard Crusper where he says that they felt like they were slaves to the machines. Um, you know, they, they kind of, they'd, they wanted to have those elements, but not have those elements control how they wrote the songs, which they felt they had done on the, or he felt that they had done on the previous albums. Um, and part of that is about making Schneider's drums sound more human and less like, you know, a drum machine or something. Um, which I think they definitely did on this album. The drums sound huge on this album, and they do sound very human, even though there is that kind of uh, almost militaristic rhythm to several of the songs. Right. 
Yeah, I did. I did see a quote about that. Um, uh, Paul Lander said on our first and second album, we were very dependent on samplers and computerized music machinery, even to write the songs. Uh, and with Mutter, we really wanted to, we really based the songs on the guitar and are only using technology to enhance it, to give it flavor. Oh, so it was Lander's, not CRISPR, my mistake. Right, cool. Um, also, interestingly, their producer, Jacob Hellner, a Swedish producer, he's produced almost all of their albums like mm-hmm. right from the first album through to the present day. So clearly a very sort of value collaborator. If you look him up, so the reason that they got him in the first place was he produced Clawfinger's debut album, Deaf Dumb Blind. And they liked, that he w- they liked the sound of that album and that he was doing new things. Deaf Dumb Blind is the album that famously, on the in, uh, inlay sleeve, they uh, make a big point of the fact that there are no guitar amplifiers or speakers whatsoever that the guitar went straight into the mixing desk you know mm-hmm. it's all electronic distortion and what have you which at the time was a huge controversy <laughs> like nowadays nobody gives a shit but in 1993 or whenever that album was released that was a huge deal um so they liked that he was willing to do new things but the funny thing is apart from Clawfinger and Rammstein the only other bands that he's had any significant involvement with are Emigrate and Lindemann which obviously are two of the spin-off bands right. from Rammstein, and Apocalyptica. And that's, huh. p- that's pretty much it. Like, how unusual is that for a producer to be involved in such hugely successful albums with such big, still-going, still-very-successful bands, and then do almost nothing else? How strange is that? It's, it's uh, almost it's unheard definitely of. definitely strange. Yeah, it's almost unheard of for a producer. I mean, I admire it in a way. Too. You know, clearly he's a bit of a purist. <laughs> well, but, and I was going to say, he must do all right off of the work that he's done oh, with, I'm uh, sure he does. with these yeah. guys. So uh, definitely yeah. doesn't. But it, it all comes down to, like, do you feel the need to go and do something different, right? Exactly, do you feel the need? Yeah. Or, or are you being creatively satisfied with the work that you're doing? And, right. Yeah, and I th- and I think that's the case. Yeah, so a um, couple of other things before we get onto the tracks. I found a hilariously bad review uh, from the time of the uh, this album's release by the in the NME, uh, which British people are going. Well, of course it was. Uh, if you don't know the NME, the New Musical Express was a famously sort of bad tempered, bitchy music paper uh, of the time i'm not even sure it's around anymore other than as a website uh who famously basically just hated anything that wasn't like indie guitar music um, uh-huh. and it is it's hilarious it is predictably it is dismissive it is ignorant it mocks them as throwbacks bizarrely which which is just like uh i mean that just shows that the reviewer knows nothing about metal i think um just it's yeah if you go and look it up online, it is hilariously bad because it's just everything about that review is wrong. <laughs> it's just terrible. Um, and the other thing was we haven't talked much about the live show. I've never seen them live. I know I people who, I know people who have. Everyone I know who has seen Rammstein live says they have never seen anything like it in their lives. It is the best and biggest live band show they have ever seen. And everybody is just astounded at the sheer size and scale of the show um you know i think everybody by now knows about the huge squirting dildos and all the fire and massive pyrotechnics and what have you what many people may not know is that till lindemann is in charge of a lot of those pyrotechnics he actually studied to become a licensed pyrotechnician 
uh, early in the band's career so that he could take control of a few of those things. Apparently he got burned by a couple of, you know, bad pyros. And oh. strikes. Right. Um, it'll happen. And, uh, and so he was like, right, I, I'm going to, if I'm the one who's going to be on fire for half the show, <laughs> then I'm also going to know what the yeah. fuck I'm doing. And so, yeah, he actually went and studied and he is a professionally certified pyrotechnician. Um, and, you know, is responsible for at least part of the pyrotechnic show that they do. And I found a video on YouTube with some guy interviewing, mostly interviewing, not Till, but interviewing somebody else. Um, uh, one of the guys who like manages the road crew and what have you for one of their stadium shows. And I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's interesting because it's the sheer enormity of this show. It takes three days to build the set that's insane. Three days, and then a day to tear it all down again as well, which is why they roll, rock up in a place, they play a stadium for a couple of nights, and then it takes them like five days before they do their next gig, because they've got to get there and rebuild the stage and what have you. And it just gives you some idea, this video gives you some idea of the size of it all, and there are like a thousand people involved when all is told in putting this show together. It's incredible. I was supposed to see them. In fact, they recently played out here in Massachusetts uh, at the stadium that the Patriots play in, Gillette Stadium. Oh, cool. And I was supposed to see them, it, but I ended up not being able to go. It was a date that was rescheduled from their untitled, their 2019 tour. Right. After the they released that album because of COVID, obviously. I think it got postponed a couple of times and it uh, happened, I want to say it might have been in September. Um. So I was really bummed out because I was looking forward to going to see that show. And I do hope I get to see them because the, I have also heard people say, like, it's unbelievable in yeah. terms of show. And I do like, I mean, obviously, we've talked about my love for Ghost and their theatricality and just like the the theatrics from the 80s or, or you know, bands like, um, you know, King Diamond, Merciful Fate, uh, stuff like that. So I I want to see that spectacle. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I feel, I must admit, I, like I say, I, even early in their career, I knew people like when I was freelancing on Metal Hammer, I knew people who'd go to see them and be like, fucking hell, that was like just one of the biggest shows I've ever seen. So even then in the early 2000s, they were already putting on huge shows. Now it just looks like it's gone. The scale is just off the charts. So yeah, I, I, I must admit, I'm thinking that maybe I should go and see them next time they rock through town or go to london and get on the train down there or something um just to see it so let's talk about the album uh like i say it was released in 2001 11 songs all of their albums have 11 songs uh, i did not know that yeah a strange i don't know why i didn't find any explanation for why that is but it is a very deliberate thing apparently all their albums have 11 songs uh and it's 45 minutes all of their songs on, on this album are between three and five minutes. There's not I a single it. one that's shorter, not a single one that's longer. Love it. There's discipline for you. Yep. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the album then. Uh, start going through track by track, and we'll start with, of course, the album opener, track one, Mein Herz brennt, which means My Heart Burns. Sie kriechen aus dem Kellerschacht und werden unter euch. 
Now, for this one, you, and you may have already seen this, but it, uh, I had read that the opening line of the song's intro and chorus uh, means, Now, dear children, pay attention. I have brought something for you. And it's taken from a German children's television show, uh, Mr. Sandman, which provided children with a bedtime story. And the narrator in the song appears as a darker version of the character in that children's television series. I had seen that. I wasn't sure. I hadn't had the chance to sort of really dig into whether it was true or whether... See, this is the other thing we mentioned about the fans. Rammstein fans are fucking insane. And I I, I say that with love. um, But they seem to have a tendency... I mean, like like a lot of bands, fanatical fans, to be fair, but Rammstein just seemed to produce... a lot more of them um they seem to read a hell of a lot more into a lot of yeah. these tracks than is really there on the surface um and like we said you know if that's why you love them and that's what gets you into the band i have no problem with that whatsoever but it does especially given that there are translation issues it makes figuring out what these songs are about extremely difficult <laughs> Because there are so many conflicting theories and arguments, and especially, like I say, given that Till Lindemann does not talk about what the songs are about, uh, and even other members of the band will say, well, this is what I think it's about, but there are six of us, and we've probably all got six different opinions. Totally. And it reminds uh, Queensryche fans like Phil can take a shot here, because that, that the band that I remember people doing that with was Queensryche back in the day, where, where I had kids that I went to high school with that would tell me that all of their early albums were one giant concept because Operation Mindcrime was a concept album. And so they were right. like, no, all the albums fit together. And the first <laughs> album has this story and the second album has this story and all of them are a part of this larger thing. And it was it was truly just the fans like reading through yeah. things that weren't there. But the funny thing was like on this song, before I checked lyrics at all, my notes were like, this is an epic opening song. It, the vocals are so dramatic. It's like a story that's being told and all of this stuff. And so to then see that, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It kind, it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and what jumped out at me is like at a minute and a half, when when he's saying they come to you at night, demons, ghosts, and black elves, there's like these horror movie strings in the background. Yeah. And I loved that. And so, yeah, then to hear like, oh, it is supposed to be like a like a, a nightmare children's story sort of thing. I was like, oh, OK, well, that's the vibe that I got when I first listened to it without knowing any of the words. Well, and all, all the strings on this track, by the way, are real. Uh, there oh, are th- OK. There are three tracks on this album that use real strings. This is the one of them. Uh, they're from the Deutsches Filmorchester Babelsberg, which just means the German Film Orchestra of Babelsberg. Um, yeah. So real, real strings, real arrangement, real orchestra playing, uh, which you know obviously is just always nice because they have had strings on previous albums, but they were always synthesized strings that Flacker was playing, and there are some of those on this album as well. But that was part of um, them wanting to give this album a more organic sound and get away from the sort of mechanized influence a little bit. Uh, was part of that was hey, let's use an orchestra for the first time. Well, an interesting choice of a first song, right? Because this isn't like a kick the door in, absolutely, you know, thumping, you know, uh, galloping song. This is this is epic. It has this, you know, uh, but it has a very theatrical feel to it as well, right? And that is indicative of the rest of the album. I had exactly the same thought. Like this doesn't really set you up for the album in the sense of like, oh yes, now you're going to get another ten songs that sound like this. Uh, 
you know, if you wanted to do that, you would have started with something more like links two, three, four or something. Um, but it is, yeah, it is epic and dramatic and theatrical. Uh, and ominous and what have you and it does have all the elements you know it's got a heavy riff and heavy drums and that sort of thing so yeah i think it puts you what i think what this does actually and this is purely just my interpretation my speculation i think what this is is a statement of the band saying like this is our new direction not in terms of specifically how the song is written or whatever but just actually we are a rock band, we are bigger and more expansive than just the sort of mechanised industrial sound that you heard from our previous two albums. It's more a kind of statement of intent of, we can do other things as well, and we're actually pretty fucking good at them. Yeah, and I love the way that the acoustic guitar and the bass on the verses, it's, it's so good, dude. And then when you combine that with how Till is delivering those lyrics... It just does have this like creepy. Oh, he's um, so great when he's going. The commons awakening. Yes, dude, and, and just like, like the oh, slide, shit. like the slide <laughs> in that rhythm as he's playing the rhythm on the acoustic guitar yeah. is like so good, dude. But it's the way like the bass doesn't overpower it. It just is like right. It's just like a notch above it. So the acoustic guitar sounds like it's creeping. Like it's so good. It's yeah. so all. I love all the elements of this song and like just the theater of it all well and i mean talking just purely musically it's a really simple song construction this you've got like the minute a minute of build-up and then it you know crashes into the sort of the song proper but it's essentially it's intro verse chorus verse chorus bridge which is really just the strings from the intro again and then the final chorus like it's about the most basic song construction you can that you can think of but the way it's played and the dynamics i know i use that word a lot but really it does this album is so dynamic and it's a bit like the white zombie album that we did actually you know the the music is simple but the the arrangement and the the way it's played and the production of it is so dynamic that you get these peaks and valleys of impact and emotion and musicality and what have you and that's how it comes through rather than in really, really complex music or, you know, yep. sort of like blistering playing or something. It's all about the quiet loud, quiet loud and judging where that is, you know, and the speed and the tempo and that sort of thing. And this opening song is a great example of that, I think, because it's so simple. And yet you feel like you've been taken on a journey by the time you reach the end of it. Uh, absolutely. Great, great, great opening song. One thing I will say about the lyrics is that, um, so I did see one thing where Richard Crusper says that this song is actually about angst uh, and anxiety and how, you know, we kind of, we have to try and shake those things off as we get older. I'm not convinced that that's actually what Till Lindemann had in mind, but that's what I mean again about this. One of their strengths is that Till's lyrics are so... And th- th- I mean, he is a poet. His father was a poet as well. And I think you can kind of tell because his lyrics are so simple and direct. Yes, dude. That, uh, that's actually what makes them 
wildly open to interpretation. Yeah, dude, Richard said in an interview, one of the strengths of Rammstein is that our lyrics are quite ambiguous. We don't like to explain or interpret them because we have six members in the band. We have six different opinions. And I think that you can create your own story if you listen to the lyrics. And that goes back to what you said about the fans creating their own stories yeah. off of what these lyrics are. But but that's exactly right. And I think that is such a strength because it, it it just lends it to that music resonating with you even more because you can make that story your own. It's one of the things that I love. I mentioned this when we did them, God knows how many years ago now, you know, and if you are drinking, uh, you know, playing the drinking game, take a drink now. It's one of the things I love about Nick Holmes's lyrics in Paradise Lost has the same quality. They are really simple and direct and yet non-specific like really ambiguous and you're kind of like i'm not is this about that is it is it is about this and you can interpret them in so many different ways and it's the same thing here with lindemans to the point where the reason i mention it here is i before i sort of delved into it in preparation for this episode i always thought this song was about child abuse but ch specifically child sexual abuse and that it was written from the point of view of a pedophile um which might sound outrageous but this is Ramstein. Like if if any band was gonna write those lyrics like that, then you know surely Rammstein is one of the bands that's in contention to be, to do it. So and maybe that's completely wrong now. Having looked into it, yeah, read up a bit more on it, I'm like, oh, actually, that I might have been just reading something into the text that isn't there myself. But as we said, the the beauty of the ambiguity of it is that, or maybe it is. And we'll never know. And that's kind of that's kind of nice. Well, the idea of it being about angst and like when you when you see some of the lyrics like I am the voice from the pillow, you know, it comes to you at night, like just anxious thoughts. And like when you try to go to sleep at night and you're dealing with all of those, all of that anxiety and replaying the events of the day and all that kind of stuff, like it totally works for that, too. Absolutely. But you can also see why lyrics like that made me think, is this about a kid being sexually abused? Sure. <laughs> or, or again, or the very literal thing about, you know, demons and ghosts and it being just a children's bedtime story too, right? So yeah. they do definitely and, and clearly have spoken to that in multiple interviews about how they like that. But I also feel like that's their take on their band as well. They, right. it's not just their lyrics, it's their whole, it's everything about them that they leave open to interpretation right yeah. um sometimes to to the detriment of the band which i think uh, is what the next song is about I was just a great segue i was literally just about to make that segue myself yes <laughs> in response to what you said so yeah let's look at track two then and this is links two three four which is or links void fear which is just left two three four
And the note that I have is that was from somewhere as the lyrics are written in response to allegations of fascism or Nazism directed at the band. The chorus states, they want my heart on the right. But when I look down, it beats on the left, implying that they are on the left of the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the the imagery that the band uses and uh, and perhaps some of their lyrics from a standpoint of being able to be interpreted ha- had obviously and I think throughout the years have led some people to question whether or not they support Nazism, they support fascism. Well, there was a time, and I think we're past it now, I think we're past it, I certainly hope we are, but there was a time when basically any band singing in German with a, you know, anything that sounded like a vaguely kind of martial rhythm would would be called or accused anyway of sympathizing with Nazism and fascism. Um, like I say, I'm not, I hope that we're past that now, but there was a time because of, you know, it's a generational thing when you would always get those accusations. Um, we were talked about this on the typo negative, uh, episode. If you remember, they had similar things where, you know, people would, were accused them of all manner of stuff and being Nazi sympathizers and what have you lie back from Slovenia in the former Yugoslavia, uh, have contended with this their entire career, much like Rammstein, because, for the same reasons, because they sing in German and they have they adopt sort of a militaristic uniform, uh, you know, visual identity a lot right. of the time, and they have these martial rhythms. Uh, satirizing something by using its own trappings is so easily mistaken for endorsing that thing uh and you find so many bands like that who've who've done that and then have to basically come out and go you fucking idiots can't you see that we're taking the piss <laughs> right um yeah i mean especially for this band they came they came from the east germany east germany like the communist bit not the nazi bit <laughs> Well, and and so when you see those interviews where they're talking about how, like, you know, they they thought about singing singing in English at one point, and then they were just like, ah, screw it. You know, I I think that's kind of in many ways their attitude about people interpreting them. Period. Right. It is just like you know what we're maybe that's why they don't do as many interviews or they don't. um, They're not constantly out there explaining the the nature of their lyrics and things like that because they have kind of said you know what people are going to think what they're going to think. And we're not going to overly concern ourselves with people making, you know, bad faith interpretations of whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy to do that when you're successful. It's much harder to do that when when you're trying to be a success in the first place. And to their credit, they have always been, they've always had that attitude and always been like that, even before they had huge success. So I do admire them for that. Onto the song itself. It's a bloody great riff. Oh, just um, pummeling, yeah. And Flacker's keyboards are really prominent in this one, actually. Um, which, is, you know, and maybe that's deliberate because he's the one who's on the record is like, he actually quite liked living in the DDR uh, in East Germany and is actually nostalgic for communism <laughs> and stuff. He's been quite vocal about like, yeah, actually, I, I quite liked it. And in my heart, I'm still a citizen of the DDR. Um but yeah, so his keyboards are really prominent on this to the point where I thought this actually wouldn't be a bad track to play to 
those people who claim that you know, metal bands shouldn't use keyboards because it's wimpy or something. Um, which again is an attitude that thankfully you don't get as much now as you used to oh, in the eighties yeah. and nineties. I freaking 90s. love keyboards. Every band should have them. Right, but the way they're employed here as well is so is quite heavy and sort of spooky and atmospheric. It's so good. This song wouldn't be half what it is without those keyboards. Agreed, and I think that. It goes back to what we were just talking about with the first song, right? Like, I think they probably don't get enough credit because it's easy to think of some of their stuff as simplistic. They, they don't get enough credit for uh, the arrangements of their songs, right? And how they emphasize certain elements and things like that. It, to your point, it's more dynamic than people give it credit for at first listen. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and this is a heavy song, no question. Like, you know, the drumming and guitar and everything, it's a fucking heavy song, but it also, yeah, really relies heavily on the presence of the keyboards. Um, and I think it delivers its message well. I don't think there's any doubt, <laughs> you know, it's clearly, well, it's clearly annoyed at the people who make those accusations, but it's also, it's probably the, the clearest lyrics on the whole album really, isn't it? Yeah. And to your point, like they say, uh, they want my heart on the right spot, but when I look below, it beats there in the left breast. The envious have not known it well. So just that idea of like people who who don't know us or right. have taken the time to look deeper than whatever their immediate dismissive, you know, thought is about us. They don't know us well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Let's move on from that then to track three, Zona, which of course just means sun. This one slower tempo, but like there's a there's a big riff here, um, a huge riff. The note that I have here is according to Till, the song was originally written as an entrance song <laughs> yeah, for, for the boxer, boxer. Vitali Klitschko, <laughs> whose surname was the working title of the song, um, and that the female vocal comes from Spectrasonic's Symphony of Voices sample library. Yes, so it's a sample that they use for. <laughs> Which is nuts, isn't it? I mean, yeah. th- this is this is my favourite song on the album. Um, this was the first single from this album. It's got a very, very well-known music video where they're all the dwarves and there's a they have a sadomasochistic relationship with a giant uh, Snow White. It's, it's very odd, uh, but good video. Um, but to me, this is Rammstein. Everything about this song to me encapsulates the band. It is the the riff is just immense that is one heavy heavy yeah, riff yeah the rhythm is relentless the lyrics are sufficiently ambiguous and poetic 
It's got the eerie keyboards and FX again. And to my mind, one of the best choruses that they've ever written um, with some great, the drumming, the, the change in drums between the verse and the chorus is fantastic because in the verse, it's really just kind of solid boom, bah, boom, bah, yep. you know, really like locking it down. And then in the chorus, it becomes like almost theatrical. There's little fills and toms and crashes and stuff everywhere. Um yeah, I absolutely love this song. Like I say, this to me just encapsulates the band. If somebody said to me, what do Rammstein sound like? This is the song I would play them. Interesting. Not my favorite, but definitely a good song, and it's a great riff. I, I also, I, again, talking about lyrics, I didn't know about the boxer thing until I looked it up. Uh, I did say that in the preparation for this show. But it explains why there's that countdown at the start. I yeah, al- I always count. wondered yep. like why is there a wh- why is there a countdown you know or a count up sorry I should say uh, and some of the lyrics like you know uh, the sun is shining out of my hands it can burn it can blind you all when it breaks out of the fists it lays down hotly on the face right uh, <laughs> it will not set tonight and the world counts loudly to ten well and so yeah, yeah I mean I, that that thing right so. Again, much like with the first track, yes, you can see how all of those would relate to boxing. But you could totally interpret it in a different way. I always thought this was about impending nuclear war. <laughs> I always took this about like the sun was the 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 atom bomb explosion. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, the line undeveloped out loud to be saying the world counts to 10. That was kind of like waiting for the for the bomb for the explosion. Yeah. Again, turns out probably not at all. But you can still look at these lyrics, even knowing that. You can look at them and go, yeah, that fits, actually. It could be about that. Well, and keep in mind, I mean, based on what we've already, you know, talked about with the band, like, A, I don't think it would be completely unlike them to... Have a double meaning. uh, Have a double meaning to offer up interpretations that maybe are just them having a little bit of fun with the audience and that maybe that wasn't even the original intent of the song, right? And then the fact that each member of the band may interpret those lyrics in a different way. Yeah, as I say, I just love it, and the that that little lyric change as well. One last thing, that little lyric change in the final chorus when he sings "Und wird nie von Himmel fallen," when you know it will never fall from heaven. That just that little lyric change, a tiny little bit of the song, I know, but I love it. That is part of what elevates this song for me. Like yep. because you're expecting obviously the here comp dishonor that you've heard by that type point a dozen times in the song, and just to switch it around like that, I really like that. I'd be interested to hear what your favorite song is then when we get to it. I assume we haven't yet. We have not. Okay, all right. Well, let's move on. Seeking that favorite track, <laughs> track four, Ich will, which just means I want. Hört ihr mich? Könnt ihr mich sehen? Könnt ihr mich fühlen? Ich verstehe euch nicht. Könnt ihr mich hören? Könnt ihr mich sehen? 
my favorite song on the album. Hey, you didn't have you to go. wait long. <laughs> <laughs> I freaking love this song. And when I watched the video for it, I loved it even more. Um, oh, okay. Just the This is the bank the, robbery video, is that right? Yes, yeah, dude. Yeah. Just musically, it's so good. The bank robbery video, the way that it is shot, amazing. Just like they really do. I mean, we didn't really dive deep into that, but from a cinematic standpoint, oh, the freaking videos, videos that yeah. these guys put together are bonkers. Yeah. Like they are their own movies within um, you know, I think back to like Deutschland, uh, that and just like they're them dealing with, you know, the the past of you know, in their history and stuff yep. like that, but just like the epicness of that video. But this bank robbery one is freaking awesome. And the they had talked about this song being about a demonstration of the media's obsession with a good story, as well as an illustration of the immortality that can be achieved by those who commit wrongs. And boy, if there was ever a more relevant, you All know, right. yeah. uh, topic, uh, a million different examples ripped from today's headlines. But even if you look at something like the Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix series that just came out, right? I mean, just the 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 way that that's told and and how, um, you know, you can see how it kind of focuses on on the wrong aspects of that story and things like that. Just the the theme of that being the cult of personality around that stuff, you know. And I love the call and response. Can you hear me? We hear you. Can yeah, you yeah. see me? We see you. Can you feel me? We feel you. So good. Um, I just think it all works together really, really, really well. Well, and especially given that that call and response ends with the line, ich verstehe euch nicht, which has, talking about this wordplay, on the one hand literally means I don't understand you, Yeah, but can also be interpreted as I don't follow you. And think about that in the context of those lyrics and the chorus that you've just heard. There's a, right. There are some interpretations of this song that it's a response to their sort of like overly fanatical fans and the expectations placed on them yep. by those fans. Um, again, you know, the band haven't said one way or the other, but it's absolutely a valid way to interpret this song. But yeah, right, I, like how much the personality cares about the cult of personality that has come up right. around them. Yeah, exactly. totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, no, I really like this song. I wouldn't say it's my favorite in the album, but it is really good. It's a it's another good example of a really simple riff. I mean, like most of the riff is literally one note. <laughs> but the, like the 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 keyboards too are so good in this one, yeah. you know. Um and just the you know, I love a good like but it call also, and response. And the call and response is great. Yeah, you know, can take me her and yes, her and Nick. Um but the 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 monotony of it for me works similar to um ministry we talked about this again on the ministry yes. episode where because when it is that kind of monotonous single note and then suddenly it changes when you Dude, hit ministry that- is a good that's a good uh reference to to these guys i think yeah so oh, i think there's ref- there's influence there for sure yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure but because when it does finally hit another note when it like in this one when it hits the higher note and then descends through those semitones you really feel it you sit up yeah, yeah. you you sit up in your chair absolutely it, it really makes you go oh wow because you've been listening to this monotonous <laughs> single yep. note throughout the whole verse you know um yeah a great example of using that simplicity for 
for power. Songwriting power, obviously, I mean. Um, and yeah, really good lyrics. As I say, not, not my favourite in the album, but I, I do like it a lot. And yeah, their videos, one of the things I like about their videos is that with a couple of exceptions, one of which we'll get to in a moment, they they feature all of the band. Like, all of the band is in all of the videos. And they're actually not bad actors. No. Unlike and- some bands who try, <laughs> and I'm thinking... Like the Metallica Mission Impossible video always comes to mind, uh, where they try and they're they're not good. <laughs> and dude, like, j- just like they, just like their lyrics and I think their whole personality to begin with. Like the videos are just filled with unanswered questions. Yes, for people to go back. Like in this one, I think it's Till. That's like he has a cane and he has a brace on one of his legs that he's walking with. And just like like parts of their costumes, parts of the set design, things that they never, you know, uh, that they maybe don't even speak to at all in the in the visual language of the of the story that they're telling. But just leave you with like, huh, I wonder what the story of that is or huh, yeah. I wonder what that I wonder, it, they're just really good at that. Yeah, it's uh, the lengths they go to for their videos is quite extraordinary i think quite unusual and it is one of the things that marks them out as a really exceptional uh sort of creative force because obviously it's aside from the music and a lot of the time the videos i don't think really have anything to do with lyrics right but as works of art in themselves that they, they really pull it off yeah and there's not there's not many bands where i'd be like you really should take in their videos in addition to their music like it's it's kind of important for you to go and see what they're doing with video in a way that for a lot of other bands videos are an afterthought yeah absolutely true uh let's move on then to track five fire fry which just means fire at will This one has a thrashy kind of it does, doesn't it? Feel to it, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's the second shortest song on the album. This, uh, yeah, three minutes eleven I, seconds. By, it's, it's by a straight one ahead second. One. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's appropriate, I think, for an up tempo rocker like this. Um, I, I think it was. If it was any longer, this this is one where I think the simplicity again, not my favorites on the album. I like it. If it was longer then I think it would be too long. You know, I, I think the fact that it's a really short track kind of works in its favor um, because it is so sort of up-tempo and really, really simplistic um, that 
you don't need it for more than yeah the just over three minutes that it is and i think it's a smart everything that you just said i think is a smart placement of the number five song you know what i mean just like with what with what we've gotten to this point which has been in some ways more dynamic and more varied and then we get to this point and this is usually where things dip in a lot of albums and so to keep it short and sweet and straight ahead feels like a good choice right here yeah well i don't know i'd say it's a bit later than this where most albums dip and i think this one does dip you know sort of like in the the last third a little bit um but yeah you're right that this is a good place to put a track like this given that we've just had three essentially relatively low tempo tracks like even links two three four is not that fast um right comparatively and, for sure and zona and mein herz brent are actually quite you know relatively slow for metal songs so yeah having something fast and thrashy here i agree is a good choice um oh, sorry and uh Ickville, again not that particularly fast so yeah having something fast and thrashy here is it, it, it suits for sure um and also serves i guess as a kind of we've used this term before haven't we palette cleanser for the next track for the title track so shall we shall we move on to that sure so that's track six mutter which obviously i think everybody can guess means mother ich durfte keine nippel lecken und keine falte zum verstecken niemand gab mir einen namen gezeugt in hast und ohne samen Der Mutter, die mich nie geboren, hab ich heute Nacht geschworen. Ich werd dir eine Krankheit schenken und sie danach im Verlust versenken. Mutter, Mutter. Now this one, you you probably know the the story note behind this one, but this was another one where Till kind of talked about it at one point in time, and it looks like Richard did as well. Um, One note was that it's a reference to their unhappy childhood relationships with their own mothers. Um, But the other note that I found was that it tells the story of a child who was born. uh, It's like a Frankenstein tale of a child who who has no mother and. you know, he's, so he grows up wanting to, you know, basically curse them and take revenge for his own misfortune sort of thing. Yeah. And I was a bit dubious about that, but until I read more about Till's background, and like I said, his father was a poet. He, you know, writes poetry and is is a published poet as well as being a, a lyricist. And he's apparently quite a fan of uh, 18th and 19th century literature so actually huh. maybe it is a frankenstein thing you know maybe that is the the sort of the most direct 
metaphor stroke comparison that they're making with this. Um, because yeah, actually that would kind of fit them, wouldn't it? And it does absolutely. I mean, there are lines because you can take it to be about obviously sort of metaphorical lines about not, sure. not having a mother, but there are also literal lines of like, you know, I have no navel, uh, and I was made in hate and with no sperm, um, or rather without sperm. You know, I was not made from uh, sperm. So you know, those are fairly, and, and those aren't really open to interpretation or double meaning. They're fairly direct. Yeah. So if the metaphor is supposed to be about a natural person who just kind of is rejecting their mother or is rejected by their mother, it would seem odd, I think, to put those lines in. But again, with this band, who knows, really? Right. Um, but this is another one where the uh, orchestra, uh, the Babelsberg Orchestra, is supplying the strings. Um, the weirdest thing about this song for me is that key change in the middle eight. Like, yeah. it is the only song on this album that has a key change. <laughs> um And it doesn't do anything with it. It's really weird. Like, there are no new lines of music in the section that has the key change. It's it's the same music as we've heard before, just literally played in a higher key. Um, but then they use it as a bridging section to bring it back down to the original key at the end, which is quite nice. That's quite artfully done, I think. So, yeah, musically, it's a very weird one, this, with that kind of uh, very epic-feeling guitar line in the chorus as well. Um, when he sings muttering, you know, the lead guitar playing that refrain right. um, has a kind of uh, slash on the edge of the cliff moment to it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It, well, and I, mean, I was just thinking like narratively, because the, the note talks about, um, similar to Mary Shelley, Shelley's Frankenstein, the character takes revenge for his misfortunes on his quote unquote parent, but ends up no different from before the parent died and when you were just saying like they they have this key change but they don't do anything with it like it ends up not oh i see yeah it ends up not turning into something when you you know so i don't know maybe i'm probably thinking too deeply into it in terms of like (laughs) does the narrative reflect you know the the music in that sort of thing of like it's easy to do with this band though isn't it It really right (laughs) well it's kind of and and to be honest like that's part of the fun Oh yeah. You know, a lot of bands don't a lot of bands don't give you as much to contemplate, <laughs> you know what right. I mean, in in terms of uh being open to multiple interpretations as as this band does. So it is kind of fun to think through that stuff. Oh, the video. That's what I was going to mention. Right. So this is one of the only videos they've ever made that only features Till. There are no other band members in it. And apparently, I saw an, uh, an interview with Schneider talking about this. That appears to be simply because, well, and Till actually talks about it a little as well in that video. Um, they just come back from a three-month tour of the US. They were absolutely knackered, and basically nobody else wanted to do it. They were like, oh. fuck that, I'm not making a video. I'm knackered, you know. <laughs> Um, but a video needed to be made, and so Till went, okay, fine, well, I'll, I'll do it. But that then turned into a huge argument. Like, at one point, Schneider says that the making of this video almost split up the band. Wow. Because Till was the only person in it, and they'd had this whole thing of, like, Rammstein is all six of us. You know, yes, of course, there is a lot of attention on Till, because he's the front man, etc., the lyricist, and we all understand that. 
but part of us being this six person democracy and we're all being we're all equal is that we're all in the videos uh and so yeah what's what seems like such a harmless thing of making a video for the single apparently was a huge deal and like caused a, a, a not insignificant amount of strife within the band before they could all kind of get their heads together and you know reconcile interesting that's just nuts to think about isn't it <laughs> yeah well especially if like no one else wanted to do it and so he does it and then that becomes a big problem right, right. <laughs> yeah it's like uh hello yeah it's like well you know you could have come along right <laughs> although w- one thing i will say as well having you know read a bit more about this band now is that till seems to be the one member of the band that everybody gets along with and nobody ever has a problem with He's, the, you know, he seems to be the sort of the unifying force. They can all fall out with each other, but nobody ever falls out with Till. It seems interesting. Yeah, yeah. Which is again unusual for the frontman to be that unifying force. Quite often, it's like, yeah, the fucking bassist or drummer or somebody. Uh, yeah. So for the frontman to actually be that guy who holds the band together in that way is quite unusual. Well, and again, to go back 1994, and they're still together is like yeah. There, there's very little that is. Um, you know they're they're unique in a lot of ways yeah well and a a band that has had as much success as they have has toured as extensively as they have for so long there is nothing that these people do not know about one another by now after all that time do you know what i mean like there are no there cannot be any secrets whatsoever because when you've been on the road that long that much for the, that many years with the same people they know every inch of one another like physically and spiritually um yeah so yeah which again just makes it all the more remarkable <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> track seven then spieler which means music box Um, this was the first song, at least for part of it, oh, where no. I almost... no, don't say it. This is one of my no, favorites. No. <laughs> no, it is one of my favorites, oh, okay. too. But <laughs> this was one of the first songs where when I read the lyrics, it didn't initially match the vibe of the song for me. Oh, I see. Yeah. Because I felt that it was going to be more epic, like the opener. And I didn't get that vibe when I first started listening to it. Now, I think when at like three minutes, when the music box comes back in, I feel like it really elevates the song, Um, especially when it's like the music box and Till. Mm -hmm. Those are the two. So it gets there. 
but it didn't start there for me. But this song, with every listen, grew on me more and more and more. And just the idea of like the fact that it's about a, a kid who basically gets buried with a music box is wild. Well, and um, buried with the music box, and then the wind blowing across his grave winds the music box up, and every night they can hear it playing from within the grave. That's yeah. fucking creepy, man. It's wild. <laughs> um, and just like the... Uh, and I believe, is it not uh, Till's daughter that does the... Uh, so, no. <laughs> okay. Because that was, I mean, up to this point, like so many things being kind of open to multiple interpretations, yeah. but that was that was one note that I had read somewhere that it was his daughter. So here's here's an example of how well, like, you know, how sort of well integrated these band members are. Yes, the voice, the child's voice is done by Kira Lee Linderman, but she is not Till's daughter. Oh, okay. She is the daughter of Till's ex-wife, who kept his name. And then married Richard Crisper. Huh. Oh, sorry, no, didn't marry, but had a child with Richard Crisper. So this is Crisper and Till's ex-wife's daughter, but she has Till's surname because his ex-wife kept the surname Linderman. Well, that sounds very (laughs) Rammstein. It really does, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That seems very on brand for this band, for sure. When I read that, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, what a convoluted, very Eastern European, frankly, set of circumstances. Just nuts. Um, But I agree with you. I really like this song. Um, And it is one that grows as well. It is a grower. Uh, You're right that the music and lyrics, in a way, are a little bit mismatched. You'd expect it to be maybe something a bit sort of softer and slower uh, for these lyrics. But... It it does work, you know, they kind of pull it off, especially, as I say, the more you listen to it and the more you kind of get into it, the chorus is immense. Like, it is operatic, again, I've used that word a lot on this album, uh, both in lyrics and music. Um, and having, yeah, the child, having a child actually sing the lines spoken by the child. Yeah. Yeah, it's obvious, but it works really, really well. I think it works really well, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um the tune the music box plays is apparently called When the Frost Wakes the Heart. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, I saw some. I don't know it, but that's what I saw a German person say. And I also saw that uh, th- there is a traditional German kids song called Hopper Hopper Reiter, which is a, the first line that the child sings in the chorus. Um, yep. So, you know, again, or it's a lullaby or something like that, you know. So that, that would make sense. Um, but yeah... I, it's there's some great lines in this song. Und aus der Erde singt das Kind from the earth the child sings when the music box is playing. What? Who comes up with imagery like that? <laughs> you know. I mean, it, but again, very much on brand for this band, right? And actually, Till said in one interview, I think it was with Pulse, um, that he explained the story a little bit. He said. Uh, it's the basic fear people have to be buried alive. The toy clock that is given into the grave is what ultimately saves the child. So it's ultimately a good story. Originally, it was supposed to stay in the grave, but then we decided within the band that we wanted the story to end well, 
and we wanted the child to be saved. So what he's saying in that interview is that ultimately the child is saved at the end of the song. Yeah, I heard that from, there was there's an interview, they released an interview CD along with this album. Uh, oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, with Flacca and... Um, who else was it? Flacca and Riedel, the bassist. Uh, and yeah, Flacca tells the same story. And I must admit, if only one of them had told that story, I might have said, oh, I don't believe that. But given that, uh, yeah, several of the band have said, oh, uh, yeah, actually, in the original version of this song, like the child is just dead and that's it. But then we all thought, no, that's too depressing. And so they wrote this extra <laughs> bit where the child is rescued. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. I think that says something when a song is so depressing that even Rammstein go, do you know what? That's right. That's when too they're sad. like, you know, <laughs> maybe we ought to dial it back a little bit yeah. just on this one. <laughs> Let's save the child. Why not? <laughs> I'm surprised this one wasn't a single, to be honest. I mean, oh, I didn't know it wasn't. Yeah, I didn't look to see exactly what singles they had put out from this one. Oh, the, the, the first six tracks on this album. All of the first six tracks on this album were singles. Which is wild, dude, because Isn't six <laughs> singles off of an album is insane. I mean, that's Michael Jackson level. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently, no, they've never done that again since. No other album that they've produced that they've made has produced so many singles. But yeah, six singles, and then not this one. So, I mean, I can understand. Obviously, they wouldn't. You know, seven really would be uh, just taking the piss. But also, I I don't know. I'm surprised that maybe something like say. Uh, links two, three, four, or Foyer Fry wouldn't, you know, that they would release that rather than, uh, than this song. I think this could have done quite well as a single, if nothing else, because imagine the music video. I was just gonna say, like, it seems like a real missed opportunity on their part, especially if, if one that they had written to have a happy ending. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Actually, yeah, <laughs> maybe that's why, because <laughs> most of their videos don't. Right. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go on to track eight, Zvita, which means hermaphrodite. Ich gehe anders durch den Tag. Ich bin der schönste Mensch von allen. Ich sehe wunderbare Dinge. Sie sind mir vorher gar nicht aufgefallen. Ich kann mich jeden Tag beglücken. Ich kann mir selber Rosen schicken. Da ist kein zweiter und kein dritter. Yes. Uh, one interpretation is the retelling of the Greek myth of Hermaphroditus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my notes on this one, very metal song. It's got a driving riff to it. I I don't dislike the song, um, but coming off of a song like Music Box, it it's hard not to be a little bit let down yeah. from the song before it. I mean, especially because, like I said, that that song music box is one that every time through grew on me more and more and more and so yeah it's 
to me, it's it's more of a victim of placement than anything else. Yeah, uh, no, I'm totally with you. It's uh, it's a and maybe f- a little too long. Right. Okay. So yeah, we're in total agreement then because yeah, it's fine. Like it's a good riff, nice chorus, uh, but it suffers coming after uh, Spieler, and also it's too long. Yeah, like this is. So remember, I talked about. I said how um, Feuerfrei works because it's really simple and also really short. Yep. Uh, and that if it was like a minute longer, it wouldn't work. Well, I think that's the problem here with Spitter, is that this is about a minute too long. I think if it was a minute shorter. I'd like it a lot more because this song is, uh, what is it? Svitter, this is four minutes, 20. Yeah. Oh, four twenty. Four seventeen. Four twenty. That's too long for a song like this. I think for a song that is so deliberately simple. Um, yeah, as I say, it's, uh, I think it just outstays its welcome a bit. Again, not a bad song, but definitely sort of, uh, a dip in the album, I think for me. Well, especially when the next song at three minutes and nine seconds kind of like is the shortest shows, song. Of like the album. <laughs> this is how this is how long the previous song should have also been. Yeah. You know, like it, it does it. It just uh, it's a tough placement at number eight. There. It also, it fades out for fuck's sake. I mean, really. Well, uh, that's the cardinal sin when it comes to <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it. Really is for me. Um, it's so funny because of the, like the things that we get stuck on. Like that's one that almost never bothers me, but I know is like a just a big no-no for you it really does yeah i also i read somewhere that this is the only chorus on this album in a major key uh i don't know if that's true but it certainly sounds very different to every other chorus on the album uh and maybe that's got something to do with why i'm not as keen on it as i say yeah it's fine but it's not you know if we were going to drop one particular track from this album for me would well it would either be this or it would be the next track um, which it sounds like you like more than me. So let's get on to that one. Track nine, Rhein Raus, which means in, out. I just don't know what this song's about. It's just so <laughs> it's ambiguous. It's so ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> and it never repeats itself, so it's really hard to get a handle on what they're talking about here. So I guess, and maybe it's the mystery of it that really makes this song stand out to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is just a, a, a mystery wrapped in an enigma um, when it comes to imagery and, and lyrically, I just don't, I don't get it. Um, uh, you, of course, I'm being facetious. Yeah. Uh, you can see why some of these are on the back half of the album, though, can't you? I mean, this again, this is, you know, 
it's fine. I mean, if funny, there's a throwaway but... song, it's a fun song, right? It's a silly song. Yeah. If there's a throwaway song on the album, it's probably this one. Um, did they need this three minutes and nine seconds? And but to your point, if every song, if every album has eleven songs, then I guess every album has to have eleven right. songs. Yeah. But I mean, when we talk about the dynamics of this album lyrically thematically like the places that they go and the places that they explore like this is the lowest common denominator song on the album oh for sure yeah i mean like it is it, it kind of i think this one does get the balance right in the it is so short i mean it's literally it doesn't yes, overstay its welcome shortest yeah, track on the album yeah uh, yep. and that does kind of feel fitting given that it's such a <laughs> ridiculous song um musically I like the middle eight and especially how they come out of it here. You've got those hammering kind of drone notes on the guitar and the feedback. Uh, and then even you could almost call it a guitar solo. Almost. It's, uh, it's probably the closest thing we get to a guitar solo on this album. Um, and I do, as I say, I do quite like that. Uh, there's a weird keyboard bit at the end that doesn't do anything for me. I, I don't know why that's in there. Um, and then again, it fucking fades out like of all the songs. Of all the songs on the album, considering the lyrics, surely this is the one, pun very much intended, this is the one that should have a big climax. <laughs> well, unless we're going with the theme that uh, matches the lyric, I have to go, the other horses want to get ridden as well, of this being sort of a never-ending parade for, uh, you know, for these guys. You know I, I, mean? I guess. I mean, thematically, I can kind of, it, it's almost like an impotent Lothario or it something. It just goes it? on <laughs> forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as I say, I, it's a it, throwaway. It's fine. But, yeah. but again, like, what am I to take from these lyrics from the chorus? In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. I mean, I can't make sense of that. <laughs> well, and then the middle eight lyrics as well. Deeper, deeper, say it loud. I am well within your skin. And a yeah. thousand elephants break out. I'm like, just, what? <laughs> where, what are you going for there? I don't get it. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Swiftly moving on then to track 10. Adios, which is not German, but means goodbye, as we all know. Yes, which, without looking at interpretation of it, feels like it's about an overdose. Yes, that's what I take yeah. from it as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't think yeah, you even I th- need I mean, the, oh, the, you know, I don't think you need the translated lyrics really to get that, do you? 
No, I don't think so. Um, but then again, given the fact that there's many different interpretations, but yeah, this song has a kind of punkish feel to me. Um, almost like a Blitzkrieg bop sort of yeah. vibe to it. Um, it is odd to have a, it, it, it's it almost like a feel, weird mismatch, isn't it? You've got it, yeah, a really it doesn't, high energy yeah. up-tempo song. And then, yeah, lyrics about overdosing. It's pretty much the opposite of the Alice in Chains approach. <laughs> like, musically, it has a sense of lightness to it that I feel like the other songs on this album don't have. I mean, even, like, though lyrically, you know, In Out is a silly song. Like, it, to me, it's it's heavier and, you, you know, fits the overall vibe of the music itself. Whereas this this feels different musically to me than a lot of the rest of the album. I think part of that might be with the chorus as well, which is very kind of, has a very sort of triumphalist feel almost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a great chorus. I like it a lot. I I like musically. I like this song a lot. As I say, I think it's just an odd choice to put these lyrics with this music, but you know, it's a good riff. Again, the drumming is great. I love that dynamic when the first chorus they introduce it by just like dropping everything out except the lovely soft guitar. And then yep. when it when they repeat it, everything is playing at full volume. <laughs> it's like proper wall of noise. Um and the guitar break puts me in mind of Tom Morello. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? With that sort of like yep. the choppy, the stop start, you know, with these volume switch and stuff. Um yeah, it's an odd one. But yeah, it, it you know, it's good lyrically. It's good musically. Uh, it's just the lyrics and the music f- feel like two different songs. But it is a yeah. great chorus. Yeah, and it's under four minutes long. So again, doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, I think it's. I think it's fine. Yeah, it's certainly. I think it's. I think it's better than either of the two previous songs. Yeah. Um, but is it a match? For the final song, track 11, Nabel, which means fog. thought this was a great song i actually think it's a it's a good closer but more for me it's just a really good song and a very emotional song like the Mm. lyrically and musically it uh 
you know, it, it reminded me of things in my own life and, and it kind of ends on a really sad note that, uh, just kind of sticks with you afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty heartbreaking. This one, uh, it's all about, you know, dementia and loss and death and that, uh, yes. this is another one with the orchestra doing the strings, by the way, these are real strings. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just very emotional song. My father passed away from Alzheimer's and just going through that in my own family and just seeing that, like, this was really, um, it was a really powerful song. And I think they did it justice. Like, like we just talked about how, um, I think it was the song before, right, where, like, the theme of the lyrics doesn't match the music right. that you're hearing. That is but not the case goes. with this song. I feel like it all it's married together perfectly and is a very emotionally heavy song and just a really i think thoughtful way to end the album agreed well i mean it's the closest thing on the album to a ballad really yes. isn't it yep um in fact i saw somewhere that uh the song owner dich from the next album was actually written during these sessions but they didn't want to put two ballads on the album. Oh, interesting. Because um, they have obviously, you know, relatively musically, relatively similar feel. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it does the subject justice. Uh, Till's lyrics are very, you know, this is where you can see the poet in him coming out for sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, and not even just about the emotional stuff, but things like when in the opening line, uh, when he describes the the old couple as Ein Fleischgemisch so reich an Tagen. Which is a, a gestalt of flesh come together so rich in days. Yeah. To to say that they're old. That's that's right. great. That's lovely poetry. That is, you know, they're one entity come together that's been around for you know, and they have a richness of days to them. That's lovely. And then yeah, obviously the later bits with uh, you know the the death and the forgetfulness and what have you. Yes. The, the yeah. wind eats her words. Um. Yeah. Just some lovely, lovely lines, and yeah, musically it's powerful, but in a in a very emotional way. The only thing musically I don't like about it is that I don't think the ending does it justice. It just kind of ends with a bit of a whimper. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a shame. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose- think if you didn't read the lyrics, right? If you didn't dig into the lyrics, then maybe it wouldn't hit you the same way. But but maybe again, thematically, right the the theme of the lyrics is that like this doesn't have a satisfying ending well and that it all goes away so quickly yes you know and so, so I, I did note that that like thematically it is kind of appropriate for it to end on a bit of a whimper but it, yeah after again this is another one with a really operatic chorus it does feel like a bit of a letdown to me yeah but i mean like being at the age that we are you know having experienced the things that we've had in our life, obviously this particular theme will, will have a different impact on, on some than others. But, um, you know, just the, just reinforcing the idea of like being present in the moment and because everything is so fleeting. Right. And, and just, uh, the world that we live in now, like it, I guess I didn't expect the last song on this album to hit me as hard as it did. Right. Really just, solidified for me like what a great overall album this is even with some of the songs that are very sort of silly and and very light in theme um 
you know, you said dynamic at the beginning, and I think I just think this album covers a lot of ground musically. It covers a lot of ground thematically. There is really so many different things to dig into with this album that uh, I feel like almost anybody could find something for themselves in this album. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, that's one of the points I made at the start, wasn't it? That it kind of, you know, the first track I thought felt like them saying, actually, we can do more than, yeah. what, than what you've heard before. And the whole album really is kind of, after this album, how could you doubt that they can really just do whatever they want? Um, yeah. Because they are clearly very good at it. Uh, I also, just talking about the last track still, um, I, I think this is probably Till's best singing on the album as well. Um, the, the chorus in particular. His yep. voice is so strong, and he sings it so well. Uh, definitely one of, if the best, if not the best, vocal performances that he puts in on the album. You know, feels- which is saying a lot because he is really good throughout yeah. this album. <laughs> he and is. he, you know, like I said before, without even you know the first few, li- few listens, without even looking at the lyrics at all, just the emotion that he's able to convey and the way that he delivers and the drama that he builds and all of that stuff is so super impressive. And then when you marry it with the lyrics and see the quality of them on a song like this, it's like, wow, um, really impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard to see why he is regarded as such a great frontman. I mean, live, obviously he's good as well and and engaging, but he is just yeah, as I say, it's not hard to see why he's consistently voted as one of the best frontmen in metal. Yeah. And, I mean, and overall, not hard to see why this album is regarded as their classic album. As I said at the start, you know, this is the album that almost everyone can agree, yeah, this is their best album, or at least their most consistent album, with the least filler and the, you know, the sort of the lowest uh, the highest lows if that makes any sense the you know the, the least dips on it right um yeah six singles and all of them good <laughs> you know is kind of mad um it is wild yeah and, and, and it is i don't know if it is actually still their best selling album but it's certainly up there um it's uh you know it was one of their most successful i don't know if it's still is their most successful because they've had so much success since um yeah well and then like i said as someone who really it wasn't to their until their most recent albums that i started giving them more of a full listen this really made me appreciate them more as a band on on every front and makes me want to spend more time with their entire catalog even if it doesn't you know necessarily is isn't as consistent as what this album is um just really deepened my appreciation for them for sure yeah yeah like i said it's just there's so much on it so much variety and it's which is an odd thing to say about an album that is so stripped down in places and yet it does really showcase their ability to do lots and lots of different things that i think up until this point a lot of people did doubt whether they could do you know they thought are you just another kmfdm Uh, and i like kmfdm but they are very much a one note band you know um and i think with yeah this is the album yeah where they really proved that they're that they're not uh and that they like i said they could do pretty much anything they wanted to yeah to your point this super successful it was number one on the german austrian and swiss charts it was number 86 on the uk albums chart and it was number 77 on the u.s albums chart 
Um, 86 on the UK chart is not that high, actually, considering. I'm surprised it wasn't higher. But then, yeah, the UK market has always been hostile to metal bands, so disappointingly so. Um, but yeah, that's actually lower than I thought. Huh. But number one on three separate charts, pretty impressive. In Europe, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that was Mutter. That was Rammstein. Um, good stuff. Very good stuff, yeah. We finally got round to them. So let us now look... The moment of truth. The moment of truth for next episode. Uh, before I do, I will, uh, as always, remind people that if you want to become uh, a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash thrash it out. All of the nominations for this poll are from our patrons. That's how you get to nominate uh, an album for the listener choice poll. And also... Uh, you know, get to take part in the backstage pass episodes that we do and get to vote in the encore episodes poll, which we do towards the end of each volume. Uh, so if you want to do any of those things, just become a patron, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make a pledge. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, remember you can go to thrash it for links to email and Twitter. And you can of course join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And I know I've asked this before, but we also have... Do we have a link to the merch? Oh, and the, yes, of uh, course. I always forget about the t-shirts. <laughs> me too, dude. I'm, I actually need to order a couple more because uh, they're really good. We do. We also sell a thrashed out t-shirt with the uh, the goblin thrash green hand, uh, you know, giving the horns. Uh, and there is actually... Yeah, I there is a link to it on every episode now. I put it in the template. So ev- oh, okay. every cool. episode's show notes has a link to the t-shirt. Um so yeah, if you want one of those t-shirts, you can go and get one just by looking in the show notes. There's a link to it there. Uh, so the listener poll, like I said, we had 52 entries, which is great. That's awesome. Surprisingly, not much overlap this time around. Um, which because, hasn't been the case previously. We've right. gotten quite a bit of overlap previously. Yeah, yeah. But this time around, there are only, I think, three bands that have more than one nomination. Um, they are Faith No More, one vote each for Angel Dust and The Real Thing, uh, three votes for Gajira, one for the okay. album Fortitude, two for the album Magma, mm-hmm. and then who else? Oh, Unleash the Archers, two, two nominations oh. for their album Apex. Every other band only got one nomination, which, yeah, is... You know, unusual. Um, from, well, technically, 1914, who I've never even heard of, uh, <laughs> are the first band on the list, because I've put them in alphabetical order by band. Uh, the first true, actual let- band with a letter is Annihilator, and the last is Wasp. Oh, okay. So we really are covering, like, most of the alphabet here. But yeah, we've got votes here for uh, Spirit Adrift, Static X, Morbid Angel, High on Fire, uh, Devin Townsend, Bad Brains, um, and Barkman Turner Overdrive, even. Which, man. (laughs) Uh, Hey, you never know. Yeah. So I'm now going to go to random.org, random.org, and put in, what is it, minimum, because I'm doing this from a spreadsheet, so it starts on line two, so two to 53 for 52 entries. And here it goes. What do we get? Generate. 
17. Line 17 is Faith No More, Angel Dust. Whoa. Okay. Nominated by Jonathan Moore. That I know there are a lot of listeners who've wanted us to do Faith No More. It's often requested in the Facebook group. Uh, so I think a lot of people are going to be happy about that. I like that because there are definitely bands that get nominated that would be on our list anyway. Right. And we would have gotten to eventually, if, if even if it's not the album per se, that is the one that somebody lists. But there are also bands that probably wouldn't make it. And I would put, for me, Faith No More in that category just because, like, I, I mean, I like them, but I was never a diehard fan of them or, you know, was so familiar with their catalog that they would be on my list Absolutely. to put on the show. So like, this is such a great because they, but they fit like definitely a band that people want to hear about. And so I'm excited to, to talk about them for sure. Yeah, exactly the same here. Like I like them. I have nothing, no, no problem with faith no more whatsoever, but honestly we would have to be on like volume 50 or something before they would make my list <laughs> of bands to cover uh, because it just wouldn't occur to me because yeah, again, I like them fine, but I was never sort of into them in a big way. Um, so it just wouldn't. That just made me think about I, I maybe someday someone will mod us into the Fallout games for the Wasteland Radio. So if you turn to a certain station when you're on the Wasteland, it's just a running, it's just a running loop of every episode of Thrash It Out that you could listen to and listen to it in the Wasteland. I think that would be pretty cool. What somebody needs to do is feed us into an AI algorithm so that uh, when you and I are long dead, this show can continue with our AI replacements just discussing like every possible album so that eventually every album in the world will have been covered <laughs> i feel like you just put words to something that we're gonna regret in... <laughs> I, I don't know man how much are you willing to pay for those rights <laughs> there's it makes now i'm thinking there has to be a mod out there that lets people mod their own um radio stations into wasteland radio oh, but I have uh no idea. anyways <laughs> that's for the video game podcast that we're going to start up uh, after we get past volume 50 of uh <laughs> of thrash it out all right anyway so yeah that's the that's the result of the listener poll thank you everybody for uh making your nominations and obviously for supporting the show you know like i said this is just really a side benefit uh something that we do that's fun for patrons but really uh you know the main thing is that you all put your hard-earned money into supporting uh, the show and helping us keep it going. And we really do appreciate that. But yeah, we are going to do Angel Dust by Faith No More as nominated by Jonathan Moore. So I look forward to it. Can't wait. That'll be our next episode. Uh, that's it. We're done. <laughs> Until then, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone. I, I was secretly kind of dreading getting Buckman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> to be honest. Oh, I don't think it was so secret. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it was pretty clear. <laughs>